So overall, Magic has more championships and finals MVPs, but both have three regular season MVPs. Offensive stats are stats that I believe contribute to an offense and can lead to points. I view these stats as points, assists, offensive rebounds, and all the shooting field goal percentages. I found each player's career average for these offensive stats and also found the player's career highest offensive stats in an individual season, like the career high. Here I have compared each player's career average to their highest season. This is Magic's. And here's Bird's career average in highest season. Now that I have this data, I can compare each player's career average and each player's highest season. Now we can compare these stats side by side. And if we look at who had the better stats, you can see that Bird wins four out of the seven stat categories. That was for career average, but if we look at highest seasons, you can see that Magic, side by side, was better statistically with four out of seven, like Bird was. Overall, Bird had the better career averages, but Magic had the better career highest seasons. To see who really wins offensively, I looked at offensive accolades. Let's look at Magic. Magic led the league in free throw percentage once, but led the league in assists four times. Bird's offensive accolades, like Magic, led the league in free throw percentage, but he did this four times. To conclude, Magic had more offensive accolades than Bird did. So if you look at who was better offensively overall, Personally, I'd give a slight edge to Magic as being a more valuable player offensively to their team than Bird. However, I do think that Bird is a better individual offensive player, as he's a better shooter, especially from free. The difference in comparing these two players is their play style, which makes it difficult because Magic is a pass-first guard compared to Bird, who's a scoring forward. This isn't me saying that Magic can't score or Bird can't pass, because we know that they can do these things. This isn't me saying that Magic can't score or Bird can't pass because we know that they can do these things. To conclude, I think that Bird is a better offensive player individually but the fact that it's a not a one-on-one -on -one game and Magic's playstyle is team-oriented, I think that Magic is the more valuable offensive player. Defensive stats are stats that contribute to shutting down an opponent's offense. I class these as steals, blocks and defensive rebounds. Here you can see that Magic's career average is about two steals, half a block, but five and a half defensive rebounds. Compared to Bird, who had about two steals, about a block, and eight defensive rebounds. So for their career average, Bird was slightly better. But for their highest seasons, Magic was better with steals, but Bird beat him out on blocks and defensive rebounds. And overall, defensively, Bird had the better career average stats and high season stats for defense. Let's look at defensive accolades. Magic led the league in steals twice, but Bird had three all defensive teams. Overall, defensively, Larry Bird had more defensive accolades. So overall, who is the better defender? From the stats, it again differs with playstyle and matchups. Magic was a better pass reader and on-ball defender because of the higher steals, but Bird would block more shots and grab more rebounds. Again, these players aren't bad defenders, they can do everything as you can see from the stats. Overall, Bird is a better defender from the stats, but Magic is right there with him. Both offensively and defensively, the stats have been very close. Comparatively, 
The biggest difference is in their points. That's how close these players are. Overall, I will give the edge to Bird because he's a better defensive rebounder and shot blocker stats-wise. Let's move on to the finals where it matters most. Bird and Magic played each other in the finals three times, 1984, 1995 and 1987. Here in game one, I compare the players stats. I'll do this for every game in every final series. In the bottom left, you can see Magic has got four and Bird has three. The four means that Magic won four stat categories. He won assists, steals, field goal percentage and free throw percentage. Bird won three points, rebounds and three point percentage. Overall, I'll judge it as if the player has won more stat ca categories, they have the better game. And so that player will get one point and then that will tally up, tally up, tally up until the end of the finals where we see who had the better matchup games where we will compare the player's points at the end. Whoever has the most points was a better player statistically throughout that finals. In game two, both had very good games. Both had double doubles, magic and near triple double, and it was a tie statistically. Game three, magic went insane with 21 assists, 11 rebounds and 14 points, a nice triple double, and Bird had 30 points himself. Again, this was a tied statistic game. In game four, Bird had nearly 40 and 20. Magic kept up the triple-double of 20, 11 and 17. Game five, Bird had 34 and 17 rebounds. Magic won that statistically with his blocks and field goal percentages. Bird went insane in game six, 28 points, 14 rebounds. 72% from the field and 92% from the line with three blocks as well. In game seven, Bird went 20 points, 12 rebounds, 100% from the free for a line. And Magic had a nice 15 point, uh, 16 points, sorry, 15 assists and four steals. To finish this final series, the Celtics beat the Lakers and Larry Bird won finals MVP. These are the averages throughout the whole finals. Magic had 18 points, 7 rebounds, nearly 14 assists, 2 steals, about a block, 56% from the free field, 74% from the free throw line. Bird had nearly 30 and 15 with 2 steals and a block, nearly 50% from the field, 85% from the line, and 66% from free. But the head to head stats match up the points. Magic was statistically better throughout the uh, head to head games. He had 3 points compared to Bird's 2. Although statistically Magic was better every game, I will say that Larry Bird was better because he won the finals MVP and won the championship. He carried his team to win. And now the next year, 1985, in the finals, game one, Magic got 19 points, 12 assists. Bird had 19 points, 9 assists, 6 rebounds. Bird won the, the stat categories 3-1. Uh, to one. Game two, Bird with 13-12, Magic with 14-14. Bird won this one as well, 4-3. to three. Game 3, Bird had 20 points. Didn't shoot very well apart from the line. Uh, Magic had 17 and 16. Shot quite well. Magic won 6-1 to one in stat categories. Bird had a good game, 26 in game 4. 11 rebounds, 5 assists. Uh, Magic also played very well, 20 points, 11 rebounds, 12 assists. 
Uh, Bird won this one, four to two. Game five saw Magic with 26 points and 17 assists, and he won five to three. Game six, Bird had 28 points, 10 rebounds, but Magic won three to two. The Lakers beat the Celtics in six games and Kareem won finals MVP. The averages were Bird with 27 points, 8 rebounds and Magic with 18 points, 14 assists, 2 steals, nearly 50% from the field, 87% from the line and 50% from free. Head to head stats, this was a tie but Magic won the championship. So as of now, Magic has won the stats matchup in 1984 but Larry won the championship and the finals MVP. In 1985, the stats were tied, but Magic won the championship. So 1987 is the tiebreaker. In game one, Magic dropped 29 and Bird had 32. To go with these points, Magic also had 13 assists and eight boards. Bird had seven rebounds and six assists. Magic won this four to two. In game two, Bird had 23 points, Magic had 22. Bird had 10 rebounds, Magic had 5. Magic had an insane 20 assists with 100% from the free throw line, nearly 60% from the field. Magic won this 5 to 3. Magic dropped 32 in game 3 with 9 assists, but Bird dropped 21 and 12 rebounds. Magic won this 6 to 2. In game 4, Magic dropped 29, 8 rebounds, 5 assists, 60% from the field. Bird had 21 points, 10 rebounds, 7 assists, 2 blocks, 100% from the free throw line and 66% from free. Bird won 5-2. In game 5, 29 points for Magic and 12 assists with 4 steals, 100% from the free throw line and 60% from the field. Bird had 23 points, 12 rebounds, 7 assists. Magic won this 6-2. And game 6 saw tied points. 8 rebounds to Magic, 9 to Bird, 19 assists for Magic and 5 for Bird. Magic with 3 steals, Bird with 2, Bird with 2 blocks, Magic with 1. And both shot quite poorly from the field, but 100% from 3. Bird won this one, 3 to 2. So to summarise the series, 1987, the Lakers beat the Celtics and Magic won finals MVP. Magic beat Bird in nearly every stat category uh, in the averages, apart from rebounds and blocks. Three-point percentage, they were tied. Everything else, Magic won. And head-to-head -head stats saw Magic win the stats 4-2. to two. So now it looks like this. 1984, Magic won the stats, but Larry Bird won the championship and the finals MVP. 1985, the stats were tied, but Magic won the championship. And 1987, Magic won the stats, championship and finals MVP. So overall, Magic really beat Bird in all these finals. To summarise, I honestly think these players are evenly matched. Both players have elite skill sets and are two of the most well-rounded players in NBA history. Magic, in my opinion, is the greatest point guard of all time. And that was what I thought before I made this video. Now this research has just solidified my opinion. And Larry Bird is one of the greatest small forwards of all time. Probably the greatest rebounding small forward ever. But if we compare the players and their careers, neither player has had a bad career and neither player is far superior to the other. 
I would say that overall, I think that Magic was a better player because his playstyle was more beneficial to the team's success. But I'm not saying that Bird's playstyle damages team success. It's just that Magic was such a phenomenal playmaker and scorer that his team was going to score most possessions because he finds the open teammates so easily and can score himself. As seen with the 26 points per game in 1987 finals, and then also having seven games with 15 plus assists from all three finals he faced Bird in. To summarise, I think that both players were elite and really had no flaws. Both players contributed massively to team success. I personally think that Magic just contributed a little bit more as he was able to get his team to five championships. He also has two finals series against Bird where he had better stats than Bird. And he won two championships and the finals MVP, where Bird only won one championship and one finals MVP. In an all-time list, I honestly think it can go either way. If you put Magic ahead of Bird or Bird ahead of Magic, I can see both sides of the argument. But in my opinion, I do think that Magic just contributed that little bit more to winning. I hope this video was useful to most of you, maybe to educate you on the rivalry between Magic and Bird. And I hope you can actually make your own judgments now about who was the better player. That's all for today. Thanks for watching. I'll see you in the next one. A lot of NBA fans have heard of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's a six-time NBA champion, six-time MVP and two-time finals MVP. But I want to look deeper into his career and see how great he really was. Let's look at his accolades first. Kareem was an all-star in 19 out of the 20 seasons he played, which is the most in NBA history. He's also the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. He made 15 All-NBA teams, 11 All-Defensive teams. He was a two-time scoring champ, a four-time blocks champ, a one-time rebounding champ, and Rookie of the Year. In his 20 seasons in the NBA, Kareem played for two teams. He played six seasons with the Milwaukee Bucks and 14 seasons with the Lakers. He first played for Milwaukee when he was drafted in 1969. In six seasons, Kareem was able to win one championship and the finals MVP, three MVPs, two scoring titles, led the league in blocks, make five All-NBA teams and four All-Defensive teams. He also made the All-Star team every year he was there. His stats over six seasons were 30 points, 15 rebounds, four assists, three blocks and one steal, while shooting 54% from the field and 69% from the line. I want to see which season was his best in Milwaukee. There is either his second season in 1971 where he averaged 31 points and 16 rebounds. That won him the MVP that season but he was also able to win the championship and win the finals MVP. He also made the All-NBA first team and All-Defensive second team. He was an All-Star and won the scoring title for that season or it's 1972. Kareem had better numbers here and won the MVP for the second consecutive year. He was first team All-NBA, an All-Star and the scoring champ. Personally, I think 1971 was a better season for him and if we compare it to his averages, it was higher stats-wise. Kareem's time in Milwaukee was incredible. Kareem, in only his second season in the league, was able to lead the league in scoring whilst also grabbing 16 rebounds per game. If we put Kareem's stats in today's NBA, let's say the 2018-19 season because this season is currently suspended. If we put Kareem's stats against everyone else, he'd be second in points per game, only behind Harden. 
Rebounds, he would be first. Drummond grabbed 15.6 in 2019. So Kareem would have been dominant on both ends. He would also rank 12th in field goal percentage, which is impressive considering he attempted 22 shots per game, which would be second again in 2018-19. to It's insane to think that only in his second season, he did all this and won the MVP and the championship. It's basically unheard of. What makes Kareem that more elite is how early in his career he did this. In only six years, he won the championship, three MVPs, and was the best centre in the league. The only other player in NBA history who was able to average 30 points or more and 15 rebounds or more and win the MVP was Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt did this twice in his career, but Kareem did this twice in his first three seasons. To say Kareem was good is an understatement. He was an elite player at such an early age. Let's look at his time in LA. Kareem was traded by the Bucks in 1975, which in hindsight was one of the worst trades in history. But Kareem spent 14 seasons in LA and won 5 championships, 3 MVPs, 1 Finals MVP, he made 10 All-NBA teams, 7 All-Defensive teams and 13 All-Star appearances. He led the league in blocks 3 times and rebounds once, and averaged 22 points, 9 rebounds, 3 assists and 2 blocks, with 56% from the field and 73% from the line. Again, I want to see his best seasons. I think 1976 was one of his best seasons as he averaged 27 points, basically 17 rebounds with 5 assists and 4 blocks, which is unheard of in today's game. He won the MVP, was All-NBA first team and All-Defensive second team, he led the league in blocks and rebounds and was an all-star. Or I think his best season could be 1980, where he averaged 24 points and 10 rebounds with 4 assists and 3 blocks on 60% from the field and 76% from the line. He won the MVP, a championship and was first team for both All-NBA and defence. He led the league in blocks and was also an all-star. If we compare his LA average stats and these season's stats against each other, you can see that 1976 was statistically his best season with 1980 coming second, but overall you can argue for both the 1976 or 1980 seasons as being Kareem's best in LA. It depends on what you value more. If you value stats, then 1976 is the better season, but if you value winning, then 1980 is better as Kareem won a championship in 1980. It was from then onwards that only slightly his stats started to decrease. But overall his time in LA was great, as even with his last three years being quite bad compared to his averages due to age, he still had an average of 22 points and 9 rebounds whilst he was in LA. He won 3 MVPs with the Lakers and 5 championships with 1 Finals MVP. He still sustained his success from Milwaukee into LA. Kareem was also quite a durable player. He played from 1969 to 1986 before his stats really dipped. Up until 1986, he averaged 20 plus points per game, but then dipped below 20 and fell down to 10 points per game with only 4 rebounds in his final year. A lot of Kareem's great years with the Lakers were during the mid-70s to early 80s. The 80s were still good for Kareem, but it wasn't as good as he was earlier in his career. Now let's look at where I believe it matters the most in the finals. 
Now let's look at where I believe it matters the most, in the finals. Kareem made 10 finals appearances and his finals record was 6 wins and 4 losses. He won his 6 championships in 1971, 1980, 1982, 1985, 1987 and 1988 and won finals MVP in 1971 and 1985. Here are the stats from all of those finals. You can see that Kareem was a great finals performer. His highest points average was 33 and his highest rebound average was 18. He nearly averaged 5 blocks in one series which just shows he was an elite big man on both sides of the floor. I'm comfortable in saying that Kareem was an elite finals performer. Kareem's final stats are great, they just diminish slightly every championship. I only used the finals where Kareem... Uh. Kareem's final stats are great, they just diminish slightly every championship. I only used the finals where Kareem won a championship as there is no point in taking into account stats if you lost because the stats are meaningless as they contributed to nothing. Overall, Kareem could perform on the final stage. It only took his first championship to see that when he averaged 27 points and 18 rebounds. Unfortunately, blocks weren't recorded that season, but I think it's safe to assume Kareem probably averaged at least two blocks, maybe three. He consistently showed up in the finals apart from the 1982 finals. His stats weren't good. He consistently showed up in the finals apart from the 1982 finals. His stats were good, don't get me wrong, but it's just not what people had seen in the previous years. However, it does need context. Nobody on the Lakers in that finals averaged more than 20 points per game and only two players on the opposing team, which was the Sixers, actually averaged more than 20 points per game. And those players were Andrew Toney and Julius Irving. So that series wasn't particularly controlled by one player for the Lakers at least. In his final championship, Kareem only averaged 13 points per game and 4 rebounds. But again, this needs context. Kareem was 40 years old and was only playing 29 minutes per game. I think if he was playing 35 minutes, he could have averaged about 18 or more points, but his body might not have been able to take that. But overall, Kareem's career is a great one. Six championships, six MVPs, two finals MVPs, with two different teams, but he also had the stats to back it up. I hope this video has helped you learn more about Kareem and his career, and I hope you can formulate your own opinion on Kareem. As a player. That's all for today's video, and I'll see you in the next one. The 2020 season has been a very interesting one, and it's not even finished yet. At this moment, the teams haven't resumed their season in Florida, but what I want to talk about today is the MVP race. This season, it's basically been a two horse race between Giannis Antetokounmpo and LeBron James. There are people who feel strongly that LeBron is the MVP and some who feel strongly that Giannis is the MVP. I want to take a closer look at each player's season so far and see who I believe is the MVP. I'm going to start with stats and compare who's better statistically. Let's start with LeBron. LeBron is averaging 25.7 points, 10.6 assists, which leads the league with 7.9 rebounds, 1.2 steals and 0.5 blocks while shooting 49.8% from the field, 34.9% from free, and 69.7% from the line. If you compare that to Giannis, who is averaging 29.6 points, 5.8 assists, 13.7 rebounds, with one steal and a block, 
while shooting 54.7% from the field, 30.6% from free, and 63.3% from the line. So if we compare them side by side, Giannis and LeBron's stats are even. The biggest difference is between rebounds and assists, but where LeBron excels in assists, Giannis excels in rebounding. So when comparing stats, Giannis and LeBron are equal. The next thing I want to compare is efficiency. There are three stats I will use to base efficiency off. The first is PER, or player efficiency rating. The second is effective field goal percentage. Then I have assist to turnover ratio. And finally, I have true shooting percentage. PER, LeBron has a rating of 26.08 and Giannis has a PER of 31.71. Effective field goal, LeBron shoots 55.5% whereas Giannis shoots 58.3%. Assist to turnover ratio, LeBron gets 2.7 assists for every turnover, compared to Giannis who gets 1.6. And finally, true shooting percentage. LeBron has a true shooting percentage of 58.2, compared to Giannis who shoots 60.8%. So when comparing the stats side by side, it's clear that Giannis is the more efficient player. However, Giannis doesn't take as many jump shots and three-pointers compared to LeBron, which is likely the reason he has the higher shooting percentage, but the effective field goal and the true shooting percentage take those things into account, so either way, Giannis is a more efficient player. Next is value. I view value as how much a player impacts their team both positively and negatively. I looked at how each team performed when either LeBron or Giannis didn't play, and I also looked at the difference in the team's performance when each player was on and off the court. I looked at offensive rating, defensive rating and the team's net rating. Starting with LeBron, the Lakers have a 49-14 and 14 record. In the games LeBron has played, the Lakers' record is 47-13, and 13, which equals a 78.3 win percentage. And when LeBron doesn't play, the Lakers have a record of 2-1, which equals a 66.7 win percentage. So LeBron adds 11.6% boost to the Lakers' win percentage. Although there is only a small sample size of games that LeBron hasn't played in, I still feel it's important to include this as it gives us somewhat of a measure. Next is the Lakers' offensive rating. The definition of offensive rating is... Individual offensive rating is the number of points produced by a player per 100 total individual possessions. In other words, how many points is a player likely to generate when he tries? I'm going to put this in a team context and compare how each team performs when each player is on the court and on the bench. When LeBron is on the court, the Lakers' offensive rating is 113.3 compared to when he is on the bench, where the Lakers' offensive rating is 105.2. When, the... when LeBron is on the court, he adds 8.1 to the Lakers' offensive rating. Now, the opposite, defensive rating. The definition of defensive rating is... Defensive rating, or defensive efficiency, is a statistic used in basketball to measure an individual player's efficiency at preventing the other team from scoring points. So in simple terms, it's how many points the opposing team scored. The lower the number, the better the defensive rating. When LeBron is on court, the Lakers have a defensive rating of 103. But when LeBron is taken off, the Lakers have a defensive rating of 106.6. So LeBron makes a difference of 3.6 points on defence. 
To finish, the Lakers have a net rating of 10.3 with LeBron and a net rating of minus 1.4 without him. Also something to take into account is that LeBron is the only player on the Lakers that when taken off, the team's net rating falls into negative numbers. LeBron in total adds a net total of 11.7 to the team's net rating. Now let's look at Giannis. The Bucks record with Giannis is 48 and 9, and without him, their record is 5 and 3. Giannis adds 21.7% difference to win percentage. Offensive rating. The Bucks have Giannis. Offensive rating. The Bucks with Giannis have a rating of 112.6. And without him, they have a rating of 108.4. Giannis adds 4.4 to the Bucks' offence. Defensive rating is where the biggest difference is. With Giannis, the Bucks have a defensive rating of 96.5. But without him, they have a defensive rating of 104.2. So Giannis adds 7.7 to defensive rating. To finish, the Bucks have a net rating of 16.1 with Giannis. And a net rating of 4.1 without him. Giannis adds 12 to the Bucks' net total. So let's compare these side by side. You have the difference in win percentage. Giannis adds 21.7% and LeBron adds 11.6. So Giannis takes win percentage. Offensive rating. LeBron adds 8.1 where Giannis adds 4.4. So LeBron takes this one. Defensive rating. Giannis has a 7.7 .7 difference in defensive rating and LeBron adds 3.6. Giannis takes defensive rating and to finish it. So Giannis takes defensive rating and to finish it's net total. LeBron has a net total of 11.7 where Giannis has a net total of 12. So for overall value Giannis takes the edge. But to conclude in almost every category Giannis takes it. There is also context around these conversations which can strengthen both arguments. However, I feel the context argument around Giannis is stronger than LeBron's. Giannis is putting up record-breaking PER numbers and he's averaging more points than he did last season whilst playing less minutes. So to finish the, 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 um... so to finish the video, I do believe both players are very valuable to their teams, but I do think the MVP should go to Giannis. I hope you have more information on each player for you to gauge your own opinion on the players and the MVP conversation. But that is all for today's video. Thank you for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Just a few days ago, on June 25th, 2020, Vince Carter officially announced that he was done playing professional basketball. In 22 seasons in the NBA, Vince made himself a basketball icon and had a great career. He made 8 All-Star teams, scored 25,728 points, which is 19th all-time. Vince had the longest career in NBA history, and I think that people have seen so much of an old Vince Carter that they forgot how good Vince really was. I feel it's only right to look back at Vince's career and appreciate the prime years of Vince Carter, so let's get it started. In 1998, the draft class Vince Carter was among In the 1998 draft class, Vince Carter was among multiple NBA greats such as Paul Pierce and Dirk Nowitzki when he was drafted with the fifth pick to the Golden State Warriors. Shortly after, the Warriors traded Vince to the Toronto Raptors in exchange for Antoine Jameson who was the fourth pick. Toronto is where Vince would become a star and solidify himself in the league. 
In his rookie season, Vince put up solid numbers and averaged 18.3 points, 3 assists, 5.7 rebounds, 1.1 steals, 1.5 blocks, while shooting 45% from the field, 28.8% from free, and 76.1% from the line. For some perspective, let's look at some other rookie stats in the same draft class. Here are Paul Pierce's stats. They're pretty similar in most categories, but Vince gets the edge. And here are Dirk Nowitzki's stats. I know Dirk wasn't great as a rookie, and it was his second season where he really showed his ability, but this is just where Vince was ability-wise as a rookie. With these stats, Vince went on to win Rookie of the Year, but it was his second season where he took the league by storm. In Vince's second season, he averaged 25.7 points, 3.9 assists, 5.8 rebounds, 1.3 steals, 1.1 blocks, while shooting 46.5% from the field, 40.3% from free, and 79.1% from the line. This is the difference between Vince's first season and second season. Obviously, you expect a player to improve, but the fact that Vince improved his score and output so much, and his three-point percentage especially, it increased so much is just so impressive. Vince's second season was the 1999-2000 NBA season, and he was one of only four players to average 25 or more points, five or more rebounds, and three or more assists. The only other players to average this were Shaquille O'Neal, Grant Hill, and Karl Malone, so he had elite company. Vince was also an All-Star for the first time in his career, and in his first All-Star game, he was a starter. He had the most votes out of all the All-Stars, and if that wasn't enough to make himself an icon, he did this in the same weekend. That dunk, and that dunk contest as a whole, brought back the excitement to the dunk contest. And then just 15 days after the All-Star weekend, Vince scored 51 points. Again, Vince was one of only four players to score 50 or more points in a single game that season. So now we've established Vince's first few years were good, I want to talk about his prime years. I think personally that his prime was from this season, 1999 season, to 2007. Coincidentally, those years were the years Vince was an all-star. After 2007, Vince wasn't bad, it was just when he started to decline. He went from averaging... 25.2 points in 2007 to 21.3 in 2008. So you could argue 2008 was his last good year, but I feel that 2007 Vince was the last superstar version of Vince we saw. In these years, Vince made 8 All-Star games, 2 All-NBA teams, he won 2 gold medals and averaged 24.6 points, 4.2 assists, 5.4 rebounds, 1.3 steals, 0.8 blocks while shooting, 44.6% from the field, 37.9% from free, and 79.4% from the line. Now with established stats, I want to look at winning, or more specifically, playoff success Vince had. Unfortunately, Vince never won a championship, but we can at least appreciate any good performances he did have. He first made the playoffs in 2000, but was swept by the New York Knicks in three games. Vince did put up a 27-point game in Game 2, but that was the only highlight from his playoffs. Vince did come back though the next year to get revenge on the Knicks and beat them in 5 games. Vince had 32 points in Game 4 and 27 points in Game 5 to put the Knicks away. He averaged 22.8 points with a nice 7.2 rebounds in Round 1. In Round 2, the Raptors fell short to the eventual Eastern Conference champions. 
the 76ers. But Vince had a great series. In Game 1, he had 35 points with 7 assists. And then in Game 2, he had 28 points and 7 rebounds. Game 3 is when Vince Sanity became a household term. He had 50 points, 7 assists, 6 rebounds and 4 blocks. That's just absurd. In Game 4, he had 25 points, 10 rebounds and 5 assists with 3 blocks. Game 5 wasn't as good for Vince, but he had 16 points with 5 rebounds. But in Game 6, he bounced back with 39 points, 5 rebounds, 5 assists and 4 steals. But in Game 7, the Raptors fell short by 2 points to the 76ers. Although Vince did have 20 points, 7 rebounds, 9 assists, 3 steals and 2 blocks. But unfortunately, that couldn't push them over. For that series, Vince averaged 30 points, 6 rebounds, 5.6 assists, 1.9 steals and 2 blocks. In 2002, Vince was injured and couldn't play in the playoffs. Vince didn't see the playoffs again until 2005 with his new team, the New Jersey Nets. In 2005, the Nets played the Heat in the first round. In Game 1, Vince had a great return to the playoffs with 27 points, 10 rebounds, 8 assists and a steal. In Game 2, Vince had 21 points, 5 rebounds, 3 assists and 2 steals. Game 3, Vince again turned it up with 36 points, 9 rebounds, 10 assists and 3 steals in a double overtime loss and unfortunately fell short in Game 4 to get swept by Dwayne Wade and the Heat. Vince did have 23 points, 10 rebounds, 2 assists and 3 steals despite the loss. In this series, Vince averaged 26.8 points, 8.5 rebounds and 5.8 assists. In 2006, Vince came back to face the Pacers in Game 1. Vince showed up for 31 points, 13 rebounds, 6 assists, 2 steals and a block. In Game 2, he put up 33 points, 5 rebounds and 5 assists with 1 block and 1 steal. Game 3, Vince had 25 points, 5 rebounds and 2 assists. Game 4, he had 28 points, 6 rebounds, 7 assists and 6 steals. In, in Game 5, he had 34 points, 15 rebounds and 7 assists. Game 6, he capped off the series with 24 points, 5 rebounds and 7 assists. Overall for that series, Vince averaged 29.2 points, 8.2 rebounds, 5.7 assists and 2.5 steals. In round 2, Vince had to face the Heat again. In game 1, he put up 27 points, 8 rebounds and 6 assists. In game 2, he had 22 points, 5 rebounds and 5 assists. Game 3, he had a great game putting up 43 points, 6 rebounds and 3 assists. Game 4, he had 26 points, 2 rebounds and 5 assists. Game 5, Vince had 33 points, 7 rebounds and 5 assists, but unfortunately they fell to the heat again. For that series, he averaged 30.2 points, 5.6 rebounds, 4.8 assists, 1 steal and 0.4 blocks. 2007 is the last year of a prime Vince Carter. And it's quite fitting that in the first round, he faced the team that made him, the Toronto Raptors. In Game 1, he had 16 points, 7 rebounds, 3 assists, 1 steal and 3 blocks. Wasn't his best performance, but in Game 2, he had 19 points, 11 rebounds, 5 assists and 3 steals. Game 3, 
Vince really showed up to drop 37 points, 2 rebounds and 5 assists. Game 4, Vince had 27 points, 7 rebounds and 7 assists. Game 5, he had 30 points, 5 rebounds and 2 assists. Game 6, Vince had 21 points, 5 rebounds and 2 assists to finish the series. Overall, he averaged 25 points, 6.2 rebounds, 4 assists, 0.8 blocks and 0.8 steals. In round 2, he faced the LeBron James-led Cavaliers and had 21 points, 13 rebounds, 6 assists with 1 block and 1 steal. In game 2, he had 26 points, 6 rebounds and 7 assists with 2 steals. In Game 3, he had 23 points, 6 rebounds and 4 assists. Game 4, he had 25 points, 9 rebounds and 9 assists with 2 steals, a near triple-double. Game 5, he had 12 points, 6 rebounds but 10 assists. Unfortunately, the points weren't there, but he did get his teammates involved. Game 6, he had 23 points, 8 rebounds and 8 assists. And again, unfortunately, he fell to the Cavs, but for the series, he averaged 19.7 points, 7.5 rebounds and 6.7 assists. If we look at his entire prime playoff career, he averaged 25.9 points, 6.9 rebounds, 5.2 assists, 1.5 steals and 0.9 blocks. These are phenomenal numbers and it really reflects how good a prime Vince Carter was. In the playoffs, he was able to score at will, as you saw with the 50-point game against the Sixers. He could rebound the ball, he got... 13 rebounds in one game. He could assist his teammates. He got 10 assists in a game. He could steal and block the ball. I think he got 6 steals in one game. And I think he got 4, maybe 5 blocks in the other. So It just shows how good a prime Vince Carter was. He was definitely the star player on the Raptors. And the star player on the Nets as well. I hope you found this retrospective look at Vince Carter's career helpful. It certainly helped me to appreciate how good a prime Vince Carter really was. But that is all for today's video. Thank you so much for watching and I will see you in the next one. In game 6, Vince had 11 points, 5 rebounds, 4 assists, 1 steal and 1 block. In game 6, Vince had 11 points, 5 rebounds, 4 assists, 1 steal and 1 block. From the start of the NBA, there have been many superstars who turn into legends of the game. From the 50s to present day, most NBA fans can name one NBA legend from each era. In most eras, those legends weren't alone. There was always somebody else there chasing the title of best player in the league, or best at a certain position. These legends would battle in the regular season, the playoffs, and in the finals. Today, I want to compare the first and last time NBA legends played each other. Without further ado, let's get started. Starting in the 1950s, it was a battle of the Giants. On the right, we have Wilt Chamberlain, one of the most, if not the most, dominant player of all time. And on the left, we have Bill Russell, one of the greatest winners of all time, with 11 championships. Before we get into their matchups, let's add some context first. Before their matchup, Bill Russell had already been in the NBA for three years, and in that time, he won two championships, one MVP. He was a two-time All-Star and led the league in rebounds every year he had been in the NBA. And as for Walt Chamberlain, well, he was a rookie with no accolades to stand on. On November 7th, 1959, these two would clash for the first time, and Wilt would put up 30 points, 
and Bill Russell put up 22. Both cleaned the glass, but Russell in particular, with his 35 rebounds. Russell had two assists compared to Wilt's one. Neither of them shot particularly well, but when you consider that they were both defensive monsters, I think you can see why they didn't shoot well. And from the line, Bill Russell was perfect. And before you say he only shot like two free throws, so it's easy to get 100%, you're wrong. In this game, Bill shot 8 for 8 and Will shot 6 for 12. But stats-wise, you can see that Bill beat Wilt. And for the game, the Celtics beat Philadelphia. Now let's fast forward 10 years. It's May 5th, 1969. Game 7 of the NBA Finals. If there was ever a perfect way to have a last battle, I think this is it. A 34-year-old Bill Russell in his last season was matched up against a declining but still good Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt scored 18 points compared to Russell's 6. Both did their jobs rebounding, but Wilt did it better with 27 rebounds. Bill was helping his teammates out more though, with 6 assists, but wasn't making many shots compared to Wilt, who went 7 for 8 from the field. Bill did make up for it at the line, unlike Wilt who was 4 for 13. In the end, the Celtics won the game 7, and Russell may not have come out on top stats-wise, but he was the real winner from this matchup, because he won the championship. With Bill Russell now out the league, Wilt was alone. But he was only alone for a postseason, as in the NBA draft, a new legend was about to start his career. Lou Alcindor, or as we know him now, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. On October 24th, 1969, Wilt would face Kareem for the first time. And in their matchup, he would score 25 points and grab 25 rebounds. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the number of assists anywhere. But Wilt would shoot 64% from the field, but only 38% from the line. It was clear to see that Wilt won this matchup, and the score reflects that, but Kareem had a great performance despite this loss. Five years later, Wilt would retire. In these years, Kareem solidified himself as probably the best player in the league, and an all-time great. But on March 27th, 1973, Kareem would face Wilt for the final time, and put up 24 points whilst Wilt had zero, but he did attempt a shot. Kareem would out-rebound Wilt, but Wilt would get more assists. The shooting percentages are forgettable, but Kareem would go on to win the game and take the matchup overall. Now that Wilt and Bill Russell were retired, the league was missing its Celtics versus Lakers rivalry. But that was about to change in 1979. That's all for part one. In the next video, the timeline will continue from the 1980s to present day. That's all for this video. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Hello and welcome back to the channel. This is a part two to the previous video on my channel. If you haven't seen that video yet, I recommend watching that video so you're all caught up for this video. Without any further ado, let's pick up where we left off. As I said in the last video, the league was missing its Celtics versus Lakers rivalry. And that was about to change. In 1979, the Lakers drafted Magic Johnson and the Celtics drafted Larry Bird. These two would become legends of the game and forever have their names cemented together in history. But these two would have a battle that would precede their NBA careers. On March 26, 1979, the Michigan State Spartans would face off against Indiana State in the NCAA Championship. Magic Johnson played for Michigan State and Larry Bird played for Indiana State. In their first ever matchup, Magic would score 24 points compared to Larry, who scored 19. 
but Bird would out-rebound Magic, 13-7. Magic would get more assists with his 5 compared to Larry's 2. Magic would shoot 8 for 15 from the field compared to Larry who would shoot only 7 for 21. Magic would also outscore Bird from the line by making 8 out of his 10 free throws where Bird only made 5 of his 8. Magic would ultimately lead his Michigan State team to the championship before he would take his talents to the NBA. I think it's only fair to look at their first NBA matchup too. So on January 13th 1980 these two would face off for the first time since the NCAA championship. Magic would have a very poor game with only one point where Larry scored 14. Larry also got a double-double with his 12 rebounds. Magic would only just beat Larry by one in assists. Magic made zero shots and Larry shot 70% but Bird would miss his free throws and Magic made one. Larry definitely won this first matchup of their NBA careers but Magic would come out on top with the win. Fast forward 11 years and 8 championships later, on February 15th 1991, these two legends would face off for the final time. Larry would only score 11 points compared to Magic's 21, but Larry would grab 11 rebounds when Magic grabbed 9. Magic did what Magic does and got 16 assists, but Bird was also there with 11. Shooting wise, Magic shot 53.8% compared to Bird's 25%, but Bird would go 2 for 2 from the line and Magic would go 6 for 8. Overall, Magic won stats wise, but nobody had a bad performance. Bird had a triple double and Magic had a near triple double with 16 assists. Bird would win the game and retire the following season, whilst Magic sat the season out due to the HIV virus. During the time that Magic and Bird were battling, one player was creating a legacy for himself. That player was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was the best player in the NBA and he proved it when he beat Magic in the NBA Finals for his first championship. But when Magic retired after the 95-96 season, the Lakers brought in a new star. They drafted Kobe Bryant. Michael Jordan was Kobe's idol, but Kobe wanted to be better than him. They first matched up on December 17, 1996 and Kobe's first game against Jordan was unfortunate. In Kobe's rookie season, he was on limited minutes and only played 9 minutes against the Bulls, but still put up 5 points with 1 rebound, no assists, but on 40% shooting from the field and 0% from the line. Jordan, on the other hand, had 30 points, 9 rebounds and 3 assists, while shooting 31.3% from the field and 71.4% from the line. Jordan would ultimately come out on top with stats and the win. Fast forward 7 years and one three-peat later and Kobe was one of the best players in the league whilst Jordan was playing his last season. On March 28, 2003, Kobe would face Jordan for the last time. Kobe would go off against Jordan and drop 55 points with 5 rebounds and 3 assists on 51.7% shooting from the field and 88.9% shooting from the line. Jordan would still show up with 23 points no rebounds, but four assists. Jordan shot 50% from the field and 75% from the line that game, but Kobe's performance blew the Wizards out of the water, and the Lakers won the game. When Jordan retired, Kobe was met the next season with a rookie LeBron James. In their first meeting on January 12, 2004, Kobe for some reason only played in the first half of the game. Despite this, he still scored 10 points. He grabbed five rebounds with two assists. Kobe shot 37.5% from the field and 80% from the line. 
LeBron, on the other hand, scored 16 points with 5 rebounds and 7 assists on 30% shooting from the field and 80% from the line. The Lakers would win this game and LeBron technically won the matchup, but I don't think it's a clear win with the context around the game. Fast forward 12 years and 4 championships later to March 10th, 2016. The last time Kobe would play LeBron was special. Kobe was efficient with 26 points, 5 rebounds and 2 assists on 68.8% shooting from the field and 50% from the line. LeBron would score 24 points, grab 5 rebounds and dish out 7 assists while shooting 50% from the field and 62.5% from the line. Head to head the stats were tied so there is no clear winner but for Kobe to put up those numbers against a prime LeBron in his final season after an Achilles injury is just very impressive. The Cavs did win this game, but that was a great final battle. That's going to end it for today's video. Thank you so much for watching, and I'll see you in the next one. Bill Russell is regarded as one of the greatest players of all time, and one of the greatest defenders of all time as well. He is widely known for having won the most championships in NBA history, and his rivalry with Wilt Chamberlain. But how good really was Bill Russell? Well, let's start with how I'm going to evaluate him. I'm going to look at his accomplishments and in particular his MVP seasons. I want to find his best statistical season out of his MVP seasons and then also see if he has any better seasons outside of the MVP season. Then I want to look at his finals performances and final stats. Particularly I want to see how many times he faced Wilt Chamberlain in the finals to see how well he matched up and played against Wilt. After this I can give a summary of Bill's offensive game and defensive game and then give my overall opinion on Russell. So without further ado, let's get started. Accomplishments and accolades. Bill Russell is one of the most accomplished athletes in sports. He's won 11 championships and five MVPs. He was a 12-time All-Star with one All-Star game MVP, and he led the league in rebounds four times, made the All-NBA team 11 times, and All-Defensive team once. You may be thinking, wait, if Bill Russell is one of the greatest defenders of all time, why has he only been in one all-defensive team? Well, that's because the all-defensive team accolade was introduced in the 1968-1969 season, and this was the last year of Bill Russell's career. This is also the reason you don't see any Defensive Player of the Year awards, as that was introduced after Bill Russell retired. The Finals MVP was also introduced in the last season of Bill Russell's career. For some context, Russell only played for 13 seasons, so the fact that he was able to do this in such a short career is incredible. For Bill's career, he averaged 15.1 points, 22.5 rebounds and 4.3 assists. The only other player in NBA history to have averaged more than 15 points and 22 rebounds was Wilt Chamberlain, so Bill Russell has elite company. Let's look at Bill Russell's MVP seasons now. He won his five MVPs in 1958, 1961, 62, 63 and 65. Bill Russell is one of only three players in NBA history to win three consecutive MVPs. The two other players are Wilt Chamberlain and Larry Bird. These are the stats from each MVP season. In these seasons, the highest stats Russell achieved were 18.9 points, 24.1 rebounds, 5.3 assists and he shot 45.7% from the field and 59.5% from the line. Three of these stats, his points and both shooting percentages, all came in the same season in 1962. 
If we look at this season, it's his best MVP season and his best season overall in his career. In 1962, he led his team to the best record in the league with 60 wins and 20 losses. He made the All-NBA second team and was an All-Star. There is no defensive team as, like I said earlier, it wasn't introduced until 1968. To finish the season, he also won the championship. In that NBA championship, he took the Lakers to seven games and had a very notable performance in Game 7. He had 30 points and 40 rebounds and he shot 44% from the field and 82% from the line, which is incredible as he was a big man and he also shot 17 free throws. If we compare that to the Lakers centres, Jim Krebs and Ray Felix, you can see that the Lakers centres had a total of 10 points, 3 assists and 14 rebounds while shooting an average of 30% from the field and 50% from the line. Comparing that to Russell, who outplayed both centres combined in every stat category. If we add in the power forwards too, he still outscored and out-rebounded the power forwards and centres combined while shooting better than both of them collectively. Overall, I think that 1962 was Bill Russell's best season and his best MVP season. He averaged the most points in his career this season. He shot the second highest percentage from the field and the fourth highest percentage from the free throw line. It was also his fifth highest rebounding season. All his major stat categories were in his top five of his career. To go alongside these stats, you also saw and heard the accolades that I mentioned earlier. So to summarise his accomplishments, I'd give him a 10 out of 10. He is the second most accomplished player in NBA history with 17 trophies, only behind Michael Jordan with 22 trophies. And this was also in an era where there were no Finals MVP awards and no Defensive Player of the Year awards. So to say that Bill Russell wouldn't have won a few Finals MVPs and a Defensive Player of the Year award isn't out of the question to make him the most accomplished player of all time. Now let's look at his NBA Finals appearances and performances. Bill Russell played 13 seasons in the NBA and made 12 Finals appearances. These were the seasons that he won his 11 championships. These were his final stats and his best stats were 23 points, 29.5 rebounds, 5.8 assists, 70.2% from the field and 74.2% from the line. Over his 12 finals, he averaged 16 points, 25 rebounds and 4.6 assists while shooting 44.9% from the field and 59.35% from the line. If you compare his regular season stats to his finals averages, you can see that every stat category increases in the finals, showing that he was able to elevate his game in the bigger moments. In these finals, he faced Wilt Chamberlain twice, once in 1964 and the second time in 1969. Let's look at the 1964 finals. In Game 1, Bill Russell didn't score much, unlike Wilt but he did get the better of Wilt in the game and go up 1-0 in the series and would also beat him statistically. Game 2, Wilt would have 32 points and 25 rebounds while shooting a great percentage from the field, but unfortunately he couldn't push them over the edge as they lost Game 2, despite Wilt winning the matchup. Game 3, Wilt had an even better performance, scoring 35 points and grabbing 25 rebounds alongside 5 assists with great shooting numbers but this time he was able to push them over the edge and also win the matchup. Game 4 saw Wilt clean the glass with 38 rebounds and 27 points, but the Celtics would get the better of him. In Game 5, Wilt would put in a great effort to win with 30 points and 27 rebounds, but would lose the game and the series despite winning the matchup against Russell.
If we look at the averages, it reflects the players' matchup battle where Wilt would outscore and out-rebound Russell, but wouldn't assist as much. In 1969, the Celtics took the Lakers to seven games. In game one, Russell took the edge with 27 rebounds and 16 points. In game two, Bill Russell had a near triple-double with 21 rebounds, 13 assists and 9 points. Game three was a different story where Wilt grabbed 26 boards and scored 16 points. Game four, both players cleaned the boards, but especially Wilt, with 31 rebounds. Game 5, Wilt matched his rebounds from last game, but Russell was more efficient. Game 6, both players were pretty evenly matched, but Russell had the edge. And in Game 7, Wilt dominated 18 points and 27 rebounds while shooting 87.5% from the field. Overall, Bill Russell did beat Wilt in the matchups 4-3, and he also won the championship. But if you look at the series averages for the stats, Wilt was actually better on average than Russell. To conclude, in the two times they faced each other in the finals, but Russell took the edge championship-wise. But stats-wise, it was a tie. There are arguments for either side to say who was better in the 1969 finals, as Wilt wasn't the first option on the Lakers, and to be honest, he wasn't even the second or third option sometimes. So for him to average 11-plus points is quite good, but that argument could also be made for Russell. Overall, for the finals battles against Wilt, Russell won both championships, and the aim of the game is to win, so that's more meaningful in my opinion than stats. To summarise my opinion on Bill Russell, I believe that he was never the most offensively minded player, but he would get his points if and when he needed to. He had intangibles that cannot be measured, but he is a leader. He was the rock in the paint and the safety net that they needed to win. He played his role and played defence to help his team get over the edge. The fact that he won five MVPs shows that he was one of the best, if not the best player on that Celtics team. His stats are ridiculous and for a big man to be averaging more assists than some guards in today's game, it goes to show how unselfish he was. Overall, Bill Russell is quite underrated and always will be because of the lack of footage we have on him, as well as the lack of stats such as blocks and steals to represent his defensive ability. The lack of defensive player awards are also hard to see how he compared to the rest of the league, but I have no doubt in my mind that he would have averaged 2-3 blocks per game. But that is all for today's video, I hope you enjoyed and I hope you learnt more about the legend of Bill Russell. Thanks for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Hi guys, welcome back to the channel. The NBA playoffs have been thrilling to say the least, with players showing up and players shrinking down to buzzer beaters and 50 point games. So in today's video, we're going to be looking at the top 5 players in the NBA playoffs so far. So let's get started. With number 5, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Over his two series against the Magic and Miami, Giannis has averaged 26.7 points, 13.8 rebounds, which leads the NBA playoffs with 5.7 assists, 0.7 steals and 0.9 blocks per game, while shooting 55.9% from the field, 32.5% from free, and a poor 58% from the line. If Giannis was averaging his regular season scoring numbers, he might be higher on the list, but he was shut down by the Heat and all credit to them. That's also the other reason he is only fifth, as we were expecting him to make the finals, but the Heat played out of their skin and Giannis couldn't get past them. But now moving on, and coming in at joint number four, we have Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray. In the first round series of the Jazz vs the Nuggets, we saw these two young stars battle it out. In game one, Donovan Mitchell had the best game of his career in my opinion, scoring 57 points, 
whilst also leading his team in assists and rebounds with 7 assists and 9 boards. He also scored 22 of his 57 points in the 4th quarter to try and get his team to the win. But Jamal Murray would help push the Nuggets over the edge with 10 points in the 4th and 10 points in overtime to get the win. We also saw Jamal Murray score 50 points in Game 4 with 11 rebounds and 7 assists. And also to go with that, Donovan Mitchell also scored 51 in the same game, officially making them the first pair of opponents to score 50 or more points in the same postseason game. Both players would have multiple 50-point games in the series. For the series, Mitchell averaged 36.3 points, which leads to the playoffs, with 5 rebounds, 4.9 assists, 1 steal, 0.3 blocks, on 52.9% shooting from the field, 51.6% shooting from free, and 94.8% from the line. These numbers are just absurd, especially the shooting percentages. It's just unheard of. For a player to have a 50-50-90, it's crazy. Murray would also average incredible numbers for this series with 31.6 points, 5.6 rebounds, 6.3 assists, 0.6 steals and 0.3 blocks on 55% shooting from the field, 53.3% shooting from free and 92% from the line. What an amazing series it was to watch and it's even more amazing to watch these young stars emerge right in front of us. At the number 3 spot I have Luka Doncic. You may be saying, wait, why is Giannis at number 5, but Luka is at number 3, when Luka was eliminated in the first round, but Giannis was eliminated in the second round? Well, I have Luka here because his numbers were just incredible. And it's also the fact that he took one of the best teams in the league and the reigning finals MVP to 6 games. Luka would also do this without his second best player, Kristaps Porzingis. You saw this in a terrific Game 4, where Luka would pull out all the stops with 43 points, 17 rebounds and 13 assists, he also had two steals and a block on 58.1% shooting from the field, 40% from three, with the not-so-great 60% from the line, to go alongside the game-winning step-back buzzer-beater to top off that incredible game. For the series, he would average 31 points, 9.8 rebounds, 8.7 assists, 1.2 steals and 0.5 blocks, with 50% shooting from the field, 36.4% shooting from three and a poor 65.6% from the line. Luka elevated his game in the series against one of the best defensive teams in the league. If he had Paul Zingas, there is no doubt in my mind that he would have taken the Clippers to seven games. At number two, I have Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi has had a phenomenal playoff performance so far, very similar to last year. He is averaging 29.1 points, 9.7 rebounds and 5.3 assists, with 2.1 steals and 0.8 blocks. 52.2% shooting from the field, a poor 26.7% shooting from three, and 83.3% from the line. A highlight performance that Kawhi had was in Game 3, where he scored 36 points, grabbed 9 rebounds, and dished out 8 assists, with 2 steals and a block, on great shooting numbers other than his 3-point percentage. Kawhi was also an assassin down the stretch of Game 4, scoring 13 points in the 4th and overtime, on 55% shooting. He was making almost every jump shot he was getting, which was incredible to see. He was also responsible for assisting Marcus Morris on a free, which gave him the lead, as well as a clutch blocked layup. The only reason I have Kawhi at number 2 instead of number 1 is because he was taken to 6 games by Luka when he should have been beating that team without Porzingis. And also, in Game 4 where Luka hit the game winner, Kawhi didn't step up to guard him and left Reggie Jackson to guard him for the last possession of the game. But even still, Kawhi has been one of the most consistent players in this year's playoffs and I think you could swap him and the number one spot and I wouldn't have a problem with it.
Now for my number one spot, I have LeBron James. LeBron James is making a statement this postseason to silence the people who questioned him for not making the playoffs last season. Now with AD, LeBron has somewhat of a supporting cast for his championship run. LeBron has been averaging 27.6 points, 9.6 rebounds, 9 assists, 1.4 steals and 1.3 blocks per game while shooting an amazing 57.8% from the field, 40.8% from free and 71.4% from the line. These are amazing shooting numbers except for his free throw shooting which is subpar but everything else is better than Kawhi really. Kawhi is only grabbing 0.1 more rebounds but he's getting 4 less assists. LeBron is arguably playing the best defence he has in a long time looking at the numbers. He has averaged double the steals that Giannis has and more blocks. And considering that Giannis was the defensive player of the year this season, it really puts into perspective the defence LeBron is playing. LeBron has also only lost two playoff games as of recording this video, which is the second best playoff record behind the Heat. But that's my list. If there's anything you would change, whether moving players up or down or even adding players to the list, please let me know as I would love to see what you think. But anyway, so that's going to wrap it up for today's video. I hope you have enjoyed and I will see you in the next one. Hi guys and welcome back to the channel. Over the course of NBA history, we have seen many players strive to be the greatest of all time. And we've seen that title switch a lot in history between players like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird and Michael Jordan. But what about the most dominant player of all time? Well, that's what we're going to explore in today's video with the top five most dominant players of all time. So let's get started. Coming in at number five, I have the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem came into the league and had an immediate impact and rapid rise to superstar status. Kareem won his first of six MVPs in 1971, which was only his second season in the league. There'd be a nine-year gap between his first and last MVP, which was in 1980, and there would be an even bigger gap between his two finals MVPs. He won his first in 1971, the same as his first MVP, and his last in 1985. That's a 14-year gap between being what many people class as the best player in the league. Kareem would also win six championships over 17 years. That's a long time to be a part of the best team in the league. For even more proof of his dominance, if you look at his stats, Kareem averaged over 20 points per game for 17 consecutive seasons. Even at 38 years old, he was still getting buckets. The final confirmation of Kareem's dominance is the fact that he had the most unguardable move in NBA history, the skyhook. This move was only blocked a handful of times and only done by the great Wilt Chamberlain, one of the most athletic players and freaks of nature the league has ever seen. This also allowed him to become the leading point scorer in NBA history. Continuing the theme with supreme athletes, at number four, I have LeBron James. Similar to Kareem, LeBron took the league by storm by averaging 20 points in his first season and has shown no signs of slowing down through his entire career. Currently, he is in his 17th year competing for his fourth championship and he has not averaged less than 20 points in his career. Over these 17 years, LeBron has won four MVPs and three championships with three finals MVPs too. LeBron has also been arguably the best player in the game for 10 years at least. LeBron has also made eight consecutive finals and he would have won more than three if he didn't have to face the arguably greatest team in NBA history for four of those finals. 
LeBron has been so great for so long that we don't remember a time where he was bad for an entire season. So LeBron is my number four. Now moving on to number three, Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain, in my opinion, is the second most physically dominant player of all time. There are plenty of stats and stories proving Wilt's dominance. For example, his 100-point game, the season where he averaged 50 points, the time where he averaged 27 rebounds for a season, twice. The story of when he played Magic Johnson, James Worthy, Bernard King, AC Green and Byron Scott in a pickup game at age 43. And he said there would be no made shots at his basket. He continued to block every shot in that game. All the time he blocked a shot so hard that when the ball hit a person's foot, it apparently broke their foot. He was widely regarded as the most dominant player of all time for years. And even today, some people still think it. But I think there is one guy who trumps him. And that's my number two, Shaquille O'Neal. Shaq, in my opinion, is the most physically dominant player of all time. I have him ahead of Wilt because of the fact that Shaq was able to win. Shaq was a part of one of the only teams in NBA history to three-peat. And he's also one of two players to win three consecutive final as MVPs. Shaq's final stats are also incredible. Not just his first finals, but over his three championships with the Lakers, he averaged 35.7 points, 14.9 rebounds, 3.6 assists, 0.6 steals and nearly 3 blocks per game and has over 3 finals. He also averaged 59.3% shooting from the field over these finals. I don't see how anybody could stop Shaq in his prime. He was just unstoppable offensively. But he was also one of the best defenders in the league as he finished 2nd in Defensive Player of the Year voting in the 1999-2000 to 2000 season. Now for the number one spot, I have Michael Jordan. Jordan, like Kareem and LeBron, came into the league and made his name. In his rookie season, he finished 6th in MVP voting. Michael Jordan was so good for so long, he was arguably the best player in the league from his third season until the end of his career. He would have been in his second season, but he was injured. But came back in his third season to come second in MVP voting, only behind Magic Johnson. MJ was able to free Pete like Shaq and win three finals MVPs too. But he did this twice. Six championships and six finals MVPs in eight years is just incredible. He's also one of only two players in NBA history to average 30 points or more for their entire career. The other player is Wilt Chamberlain. During LeBron's eight finals runs, he put the East on lock. But when MJ was in the league, the league was on lock. Jordan also had 10 scoring titles in his time with the Bulls, showing he was the best offensive player of the floor, as well as being the best defensive player. That's proven by his Defensive Player of the Year award. To me, that is the perfect recipe for dominance, being able to dominate your opponent on both sides of the floor. That's my list. If you would change anything or add players to the list, please let me know. But that is all for today's video. Thanks for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Hi guys and welcome back to the channel. If you haven't been living under a rock for the past couple of days, you would know that the Denver Nuggets shocked the world in Game 7 against the Clippers to advance to the Western Conference Finals. It was a choke job by the Clippers and phenomenal team play by the Nuggets and all credit to them. It's quite a worrying thing to see for myself as I'm a Lakers fan and I don't want the same to happen to us. So in today's video, 
I want to compare player to player in Denver versus the Lakers series and decide for myself who has an advantage as well as looking at some X factors. So without further ado, let's get into it. For the stats, I'm going to be using each player's averages from this season's series against the opposing team. For example, LeBron has played three games against the Nuggets this season and over those three games he averaged 28.7 points. So with my method explained, let's go to the starting fives. I will be using each team's most recent starting fives as they may be the most likely used in the next series. So for the Lakers we have KCP at point guard, Danny Green at shooting guard, LeBron at small forward, AD at power forward and JaVale McGee at centre. The Nuggets have Jamal Murray at point guard, Gary Harris at shooting guard, Jeremy Grant at small forward, Paul Millsap at power forward and Nikola Jokic at centre. If we look at the stat averages for each team's main stats, the Lakers are at a slight disadvantage, but overall it's an even matchup. As where the Nuggets have great guards, the Lakers have great forwards, so it balances out. But let's look at some of the bench players, because the Lakers and Nuggets have good rotation players, for example, Kuzma, Dwight and Rondo. So let's look at each team's best bench players. For the Lakers, I have Rondo, Kuzma and Dwight. One guard, one forward and one big. The same goes for the Nuggets with Monte Morris, Will Barton and Mason Plumley. If we compare these players' stats, you can see that the teams are again very even, but the Lakers are at a slight advantage this time. So overall, it's tough to separate these teams, but I definitely think that the Nuggets have more solid players and scorers than the Lakers, but the Lakers have very strong pieces. Moving on to my next topic, and that's each team's X-Factors. The X-Factors I have are players, coaching and motivation. You could also throw pressure into there, but I'll come back to that in a bit. Let's look at players. The Lakers have some good players that can often be overlooked. For example, Alex Caruso. Caruso is often overlooked because a lot of people see him as a meme. And the same is with J.R. Smith. But Caruso is a great hustle player. He gives the Lakers energy and he always plays with 100%. And actually, statistically, him and LeBron have the highest net rating as a duo went on the floor together. That's higher than LeBron and AD. The furthest he has taken a team was when he got the Indiana Pacers to the Eastern Conference Final in 2013. Mike Malone, on the other hand, has never made it that far. However, that's not me discrediting either coach. I'm just pointing out that neither team has a championship coach. I do think that personally Mike Malone is a better coach and that he has the advantage as he's been coaching the Denver Nuggets since 2015 and that team has grown together over the years compared to the Lakers who seem like a rushed put together championship squad. I also think that Denver have more respect for Mike Malone compared to the Lakers and Frank Vogel. I think that LeBron is the coach on that team and so I don't think the players look to the coach as much as they look to LeBron for help and guidance. Now for my final point, motivation. Each team has different motivations. The Lakers have LeBron looking for his fourth championship and I think he wants to bring a championship back to LA for Kobe. I feel that this championship isn't for LeBron and it's more so for the city and for Kobe. JR is a good piece and a great shooter and he can genuinely heat up and impact the game. He is ninth all time in three point shots made in the playoffs. And not to mention he was a part of the 2016 championship team. That is a secondary point with the players. The Lakers have a lot of players who have won championships on their team. There's LeBron, JR, Rondo, 
Quinn Cook, Danny Green and JaVale McGee. That's six players. I don't know anybody on the Nuggets squad who has won a championship. And even if they have, there isn't as many championship players on that team compared to the Lakers. The Nuggets players' X-Factors are the same, but this is with young players such as Bol Bolt and Michael Porter Jr. These players are good and impactful. Michael Porter Jr. more so than Bol Bol, but the difference here is that these players are rookies compared to vets like J.R. Smith and Dion Waiters. My second X-Factor is coaching. Frank Vogel has had an okay coaching career so far. AD is also there trying to solidify himself as an all-time great and as an elite superstar in the league. Denver, on the other hand, have no pressure, and this is the point I was trying to bring up earlier. Denver play like they just want to have fun, and that's what Jokic has said multiple times in his playoffs, and to quote, We have no pressure, we just go out there and have fun. This mentality is good, as if players can't deal with the pressure well, it just takes them to a place where they feel comfortable, for example, like a pickup game. And that is why I believe they beat the Clippers, as they just played freely and as a team, for the fun of the game. Of course the players want to win, but this mentality is what they have. I have no doubt in my mind that Jamal Murray and Jokic and all those Denver players are hungry for that championship, and they can't wait to prove everybody wrong. Some final points I want to bring up. LeBron is playing amazing this postseason, and so are Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic. I personally don't think that there is any way either team can stop Jamal Murray or LeBron James. These players will get their buckets. But Jokic, however, if the Lakers shut down Jokic or even limit his time with the ball in his hands, they can win this series, as Jokic is such a brilliant playmaker that whenever he has the ball, it usually leads to a basket. I think that the Lakers should assign either Dwight or AD to Jokic so that they can focus solely on keeping the ball out of his hands. Dwight is a three-time Defensive Player of the Year and AD was second in Defensive Player of the Year voting this season. AD and Dwight are also great athletes and shot blockers, so if Jokic does slip past, I think they can recover. The Lakers' biggest flaw in this series would be if they doubled Jokic whenever he had the ball, as that is where Jokic excels, as he always finds that open man on the perimeter or cutter. I do think Jokic will be tough to stop, as he's been shooting a Dirk Nowitzki-esque type fadeaway, which has a very high arc, so it's basically impossible to block that shot. But that is going to be a wrap on my thoughts about the Lakers vs Denver series. I hope you have enjoyed today's video. Let me know who you think is going to win this series and I'll see you in the next one. KD has spent the past three to four years with the Warriors and we really need to recognise here how good Steph and Clay really were with this move. Steph opted to take a back seat so KD could get his points. Steph is also the most unselfish superstar we have in the league right now and arguably the most unselfish superstar ever. KD had the luxury of that as well as Clay, the third option, who is a player that causes no friction in teams at all. Now let's look at Kyrie. Hi guys and welcome back to the channel. With the NBA season over and the NBA off-season about to begin, we're starting to hear loads of trade rumours, and one in particular that has sparked my interest is the Harden to Brooklyn trade. So let's take a look at it. Firstly, will it work? I think yes and no, but let's talk about the no first. I think no, because Harden plays in a system where he's the first option and is the primary ball handler. The D'Antoni system is really about saying, okay, who is our best player? It's Harden. Let's give him the ball and everybody else just get out of the way. That's really what has been happening over in Houston. 
So if he does go to Brooklyn, he will be the secondary ball handler for starters, as Kyrie's the point guard, and he won't be the first option either. I think KD will most likely be the first option. And then it's a toss-up between Kyrie and Harden for the second option. Also, we need to look at the other players on the team, KD and Kyrie. The media has dreaded the narrative that he's toxic and not a great teammate, and I can understand that, but it doesn't necessarily make it true. Kyrie had no problem with LeBron back in Cleveland, but he was just tired of being viewed as almost his younger brother. Kyrie wanted to show that he's his own man and his own player, so that's what happened when he left for Boston. Boston didn't work great because there was two younger superstars who were developing, and that was Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. With Kyrie there, it didn't directly cause a problem, but it was more an indirect way of stopping progression. With a point guard like Kyrie, who is more of a scorer than a playmaker, it obviously limits the touches of the other two players, and that's where the narrative starts. Hi guys, and welcome back to the channel. With the NBA season over, and the NBA off-season about to begin, we're starting to hear loads of trade rumours, and one in particular that has sparked my interest is the Harden to Brooklyn trade. So let's take a look at it. Firstly, will it work? I think yes and no, but let's talk about the no first. I think no, because Harden plays in a system where he's the first option and is the primary ball handler. The D'Antoni system is really about saying, okay, who is our best player? It's Harden. Let's give him the ball and everybody else just get out of the way. That's really what has been happening over in Houston. So if he does go to Brooklyn, he will be the secondary ball handler for starters, as Kyrie's the point guard, and he won't be the first option either. I think KD will most likely be the first option. And then it's a toss-up between Kyrie and Harden for the second option. Also, we need to look at the other players on the team, KD and Kyrie. It will be interesting to see, though, if this trade does happen, because we haven't seen Kyrie play with another superstar since LeBron, and we saw what happened there. But I do think that he has learned from his mistakes and that he can't do it alone. But like I said, it will be interesting to see, as he hasn't played with KD yet, and if Harden does join, it will be even more interesting to see how he plays with two other superstars. It's going to be very hard for me to see how this dynamic will work, as Harden is coming into the system as the highest points per game scorer, then Kyrie is second, and then KD is third. This is based on last season's points per game. To find a situation as similar to this as possible, I'm going to compare this to the Golden State Warriors' big three. We have KD, Kyrie and Harden in Brooklyn, and then we have KD, Steph and Clay in Golden State. These are each player's points per game from their last season. You can see that obviously KD doesn't really matter for the comparison. But if you compare Kyrie and Steph, they're basically the same. But the biggest difference is between Clay and Harden. Harden is unlikely to drop his points per game by that much in my opinion. And that's what makes it so interesting. Now let's look at why this will work. Harden played with Westbrook last season. And was still able to average these numbers. Whilst Westbrook was able to average 27 points per game. So it does show that Harden can adjust to another superstar. But Harden also played with KD back in OKC, but that was a different scenario as Harden was a sixth man and nowhere near how good he is now. We can also look at how this team may play. We know that Steve Nash is the head coach of the team and Dan Tony is also the assistant coach. If you know anything about basketball history, you may know that Dan Tony actually coached Steve Nash on the Phoenix Suns. Back then, they revolutionised offensive basketball with a seven seconds or less offence. This similar style of fast-paced, run-and-gun play style was played in Houston with Harden when D'Antoni actually coached Harden there. With this style of play in mind, it isn't unreasonable to think that they may play a very fast-paced game, 
and it may work the best with this team compared to the teams of the past. This Brooklyn team has three of the best shooters in the league, three guys that can easily handle the ball, and three of the best scorers in the league. I personally think that KD and Kyrie are the two most skilled players in the league right now as well. Last season, every team in the NBA scored on average over 100 points per game, and the Bucks averaged the most with 117 points per game. It's very possible that this team could average 120 points to 130 points per game if they played a fast-paced game. And so if they achieve, let's say, 125 points per game, everybody skips their scoring averages from last season, and this big three could on average score 87 of those 125 points, leaving 38 points to be spread across the other players on the team. So this could work. But I do think Harden will take a hit on his numbers if we're being realistic. But that's just my take on the situation. If you want to leave your take in the comments below, please do. But that's all for today's video. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Hi guys, welcome back to the channel. News broke the other day of a trade between the Thunder and the Suns, which saw Chris Paul move to Phoenix. But who really wins this trade? Well, that's what we're going to look at in today's video. So let's get into it. So first off, let's look at the trade itself. The Thunder sent over Chris Paul and Abdul Nader and received back from the Suns Kelly Oubre Jr., Ty Jerome, Ricky Rubio, Jalen LeCou, and a 2022 first round pick. There are many things to take away from here and that come from this. Firstly, one possible big three has been stopped and another possible big three can possibly begin. For some context, Devin Booker is very good friends with D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns who both play for the Timberwolves. These three have already expressed that they would like to play together someday, and that is what sparked rumours of them coming together. The talk settled down pretty quickly because Booker has a very long-term contract with the Suns, so the possibility of him becoming a free agent and joining them wasn't in the talks. However, when the Timberwolves landed the number one pick in this year's draft, the talk started to come up again. The idea was that the Timberwolves would send over the number one pick and get Devin Booker in return, there may have been a few players added into the deal just to bulk it up, but now with this Chris Paul trade, there's a pretty low chance anything will happen as Booker will stay in Phoenix. And this leads me onto the next possible big three. You now have Chris Paul, Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. Booker, we know, is a star and one of the best scorers in the league. Chris Paul is obviously one of the best point guards in the league and Ayton has been a solid player in his first two seasons, averaging a double-double. One thing that is important to keep in mind with this is that although Chris Paul is ageing, it doesn't mean he's declining. We saw that at, uh, when he played for OKC, and I think that CP has a solid two more years, at least before father time catches up. The thing that really helps Chris Paul in this situation is his style of play. He isn't a very explosive and physical player. This minimises his risk of injury by a lot, so that's why I think he can play for another two to three years at this high level. I think CP3 will fit very well with Booker, as an unselfish guard, I think that CP3 will help develop Booker and Aiton, and this leads me onto my next point. I think that this team will be successful. I can definitely see this team making the playoffs, and I can see this being a mid-table team, but I don't see this team having any major playoff success. The absolute furthest this team can go, in my opinion, is the Western Conference Finals, and it's not discredit to this team, but it's more of a credit to their competition. Teams like the Lakers, Nuggets, Clippers and Mavericks are tough to beat in my eyes. And so unfortunately, unless there is another trade, I don't see Chris Paul winning a championship before the end of his career. Now that I've expressed my thoughts on Phoenix's end of the deal, let's take a look at OKC. 
OKC now have a very solid young team and the oldest player on their current roster right now is Ricky Rubio who is 30. They also have basically every team's first round pick for the next 10 years. OKC has a potential starting five of Ricky Rubio, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Kelly Oubre Jr, Hamadou Diallo and Steven Adams. This team will most likely change in the future due to the amount of picks the Thunder have. They have 12 picks over the next five years, so that gives the Thunder the potential for trading to get a great prospect in a particular draft. But for their immediate future, I'm unsure. I think that this team can make the playoffs, but it will be tough. If they do it, they will be a 7 or 8 seed in my opinion. They might be able to get the 6th seed, but again, it is very tough. One of the best takeaways from the Thunder is that they have dumped Chris Paul's massive salary contract. So this may allow them to create a solid free agency bench. Or in the future, they can afford a huge superstar. OKC gained a lot from Chris Paul, such as developing players. And one in particular is Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who will most likely be an all-star if he improves again to be the star of the team. I predict a breakout season for him where he can average 22 plus points, 6 rebounds and 5 assists. One vital thing that these young group of guys have got because of Chris Paul is playoff experience which is so valuable in today's game. This will help massively come next season with the West becoming more and more contested. But to conclude, I do think that both teams have a bright future and both teams are winners in this trade. Phoenix have won short term and OKC have won long term. But that's just what I think. If you have any thoughts, let me know in the comments. But that's all for today's video and I will see you in the next one. Hi guys and welcome back to the channel. Many trades have happened over the past couple of days and a team that has really sparked my interest is the Bucks. The Bucks have made two trades recently, one for Drew Holiday and the other for Bogdan Bogdanovic. Today I want to explore all the teams affected by these trades so let's get into it. Starting with what I personally think is the bigger trade, and that's the Drew Holiday trade. Let's look at the trade itself for starters. The Bucks sent over Eric Bledsoe, George Hill and three future first round picks and received back Drew Holiday. Straight away, both teams are making huge wins off of this deal. The Bucks are upgrading their point guard both offensively and defensively and Drew Holiday will be a great fit, not only because of his defence but of his offensive game too. Drew can do most things offensively, but the most important thing that he possesses is that he can play along stars. He played with AD for a long time, and this past season he played with two new emerging stars, Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson. These players didn't take a hit to their game and play style when playing with Drew Holiday. This shows that Drew can actually take a backseat for team success. I bring this up because it's not just Giannis that may be at Milwaukee. There's also a second all-star there in Chris Middleton. But let's look at the other side of the coin, the Pelicans end of the deal. So the Pelicans now receive Bledsoe and Hill along with three first round picks. Now in my opinion, I don't think the Pelicans should keep Bledsoe. I think they should trade him on again and I say this because of Lonzo. Lonzo was already restricted a little at his point guard role because of Drew Holiday and also the fact that he was recovering from an injury. And now, if he has to share the floor with Bledsoe, I think it will be more detrimental to the entire team's game than it will help it. If Lonzo has the ball in his hands as the primary point guard and playmaker, he will elevate everybody's game, as we saw last season with him and Zion. Him and Brandon Ingram have played together for three years now, so they already have chemistry and know each other's playstyle. 
and I just think that Lonzo's style of unselfish play is perfect for other stars like Zion and Ingram. And same goes for George Hill. Hill is a point guard too, so keeping three point guards on the team isn't smart in my opinion. But that wraps up my thought on the Pelicans trade. Before I move on to the next trade, I do tread lightly when mentioning Giannis' name with Milwaukee at this current time because he's a free agent, and there have been many, many rumours of teams he may be interested in joining. But I do believe he will stay in Milwaukee, and I'll explain why. The Bucks are going all out to build a better roster, even if it's just for the next season. But either way, they are solely focused on making big moves to prove to Giannis that they are serious about winning. They're dumping away players who are basically bench warmers in trades for two reasons. One is to bulk up trades to make them more attractive, but the second is to dump off some salary. So when they do finish making the trades, they may end up with an extra couple million to spare, and that will allow them to sign a solid free agent for a season. This brings me to my next trade, which is an example of these things that I just said. The Kings trade. The Bucks made another great move, but this time with the Kings. The Kings would send over Bogdan Bogdanovic and Justin James and in return receive back Dante DiVincenzo, Ersan Ilyasilva and DJ Wilson. All three players combined play a total of around 50 minutes per game. So when I say these are bench warmers, that's what I mean. These guys aren't very impactful players. The best player there is Dante DiVincenzo, but the return is so much better. The Bucks get Bogdan Bogdanovic, who's a very solid player. The season just gone, he shot nearly 40% from three and is a clutch shooter. I personally think that the Bucks acquiring Bogdan and Drew more than makes up for anything they've lost. You can definitely see that the Bucks are going all in on a championship because they've sent over draft picks as well. If they had any thought of a rebuild, they wouldn't have traded three first round picks. Like I did with the Pelicans, let's look at the other side of the deal. I think the Kings, although they lose a great player, they still have won in some way. DiVincenzo is a great young player, and I think that it will grow to fill the role that Bogdan left. They also get an OK centre with Leah Silva. The Kings will be a playoff contender if these young guys like Fox, Heald and DiVincenzo develop a bit more. Admittedly, they will be battling for an 8th seed because of how good the West is. Overall, in both trades, both teams win in some way, but personally, I think the Bucks come out on top here because they are doing two things at once, making a championship roster and simultaneously making the option for Giannis re-signing much more attractive to him, so they can likely re-sign their superstar and be one of the favourites for the title. But that's just my take on it. If you have a different take, please let me know in the comments below. That's all for today's video. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Hi guys and welcome back to the channel. With the trades happening over the past couple of days, it's got me thinking about free agency. There are no free agents this year who are massively intriguing, but there is something that can happen this year that will dictate a decision for next season. What I'm talking about is Giannis Antetokounmpo. Giannis is in the last year of his contract with the Bucks, and because of his performance over the past few seasons, it has made him eligible to sign the godfather of all contracts, the Supermax. The Supermax is only available to players who have played seven or more years in the NBA and have met certain requirements and accolades before their contract ends. For example, making the All-NBA team two out of the last three seasons on their contract. Giannis can only sign his contract with the Bucks as it's almost an extension. 
but if he declines it then his normal contract will remain how it is and that's what can make things interesting because then he's a free agent in 2021 so in today's video i'll be looking at the best options for Giannis if he does decline a supermax so without further ado let's get into it the first team i'm going to talk about is milwaukee firstly milwaukee are the only team that can offer Giannis the supermax contract so if Giannis is wanting money more so than the absolute best chance at winning, then Milwaukee is the best place to go. However, that will tie him down to Milwaukee for the next four to five years. And that move will happen this year rather than next year. The books are really making the biggest push to create an even stronger team than last season. And that's for two reasons. And one leads to another really. The first is to attract Giannis to sign a Supermax contract. And the second is to make a championship contender. They have recently acquired Drew Holiday and Bogdan Bogdanovic, so the push for a championship is strong. Milwaukee have a strong lineup as of right now. They have a solid three players in Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, and Brooke Lopez. If they get Giannis to sign the Supermax, that's a great lineup who you could surround with shooters. There are also factors that aren't related to the actual players, and more so external factors, for example, loyalty. Everybody saw the hate LeBron got for forming a quote unquote super team in Miami. And even more recently, the hate KD got for his Warriors move. So if Giannis does go to a certain team that I'll mention later in the video, he may get lots of backlash. And I doubt he wants to ruin the image he has created for himself. I personally think Giannis won't have the best chance at winning if he does stay in Milwaukee compared to the other teams on this list. But I think if he sees that the books are committed to winning next season, then he will probably resign. I also think that Giannis is purposely waiting to sign anywhere so he can weigh out all his options and see which team actually has the best structure for him and specifically to see how much the books can actually do to create the best team. But with that being said, let's move on to the next team, the Dallas Mavericks. The Mavericks already have a bright future with two great young players in Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis. Next year, Luka will still be on his rookie contract so having an MVP caliber player on a tiny contract is a huge win for the Mavericks because it allows them to have enough money to offer Giannis a max contract. The biggest reason Giannis would sign with the Mavs is for the long term. Luka is 21 currently, Kristaps is 25 and Giannis is 25 as well. So if he signs a 4 or 5 year contract with the Mavs, these three will play together during their primes and finish his contract still young at either 30 or 31 years old. This is the best option for Giannis if he wants to win championships. Admittedly, it will be tough in the West, but Luka alone was able to push the title favourite Clippers last season to six games. Now, if you add a healthy Kristaps Porzingis into that and the prime Giannis, that's the best team in the league in most people's eyes. That, in short, is the biggest pull, championships, and that's it. They can win a lot of championships because they are in their primes. Now moving on to team number three. I have the Miami Heat. Miami are already a great team as they made the finals just this year. Miami also have an amazing environment for Giannis. Miami is all about the work and Giannis just embodies that. Miami also have the best team out of all the teams on this list that I'm going to talk about right now. And adding to Giannis to that will probably put the league on lock. They could have a potential starting five of a point guard of Dragic or none with Hero or Robinson at shooting guard. Butler at small forward, Giannis at power forward, and Bam at centre. That's a great team with a very deep bench. Again, like Dallas, this is a situation where it will all be about winning. 
Like I mentioned earlier, this is a dilemma for him because of his image. He just lost in this year's Eastern Conference Finals to the Heat. And if the same happens again this year and he does move to Miami, then we have a KD Warriors situation again. Miami is a bit different to the Mavericks when talking about championships because Miami has a mix of young and older talent, where the Mavs have only young talent. So it really just depends on who Giannis would prefer to play with more. Miami also may not be able to offer him as much as they have more players on bigger contracts. So the Mavs may have the upper hand compared to Miami when talking about contracts and money. But now moving on to the final team in today's video and that's the Warriors. The Warriors have been paired with Giannis all season long and Curry has a big part to play in that. Curry has a friendship with Giannis formed through the past All-Star games. They both love playing together in these games and their play styles complement each other perfectly. It will be similar to having KD again in the sense that you have an MVP caliber player who can be the first option. But this time it's like the complete opposite where KD was a skilled marksman, Giannis is an athletic finisher. The biggest reason this would happen is again championships. Giannis will get the end of Steph's prime. Clay recently re-injured himself so if he is back for the 2021 season then the big three will all be ready for Giannis. However, this most likely won't happen for two reasons. The first being contracts. Steph, Clay and Draymond are already on quite big contracts, so Giannis will have to take a massive pay cut, especially considering how much he could be making at some other teams. The second reason is hate. Giannis would be doing exactly what KD did, and like I said earlier, we saw how much hate he got, so I doubt that he would want to do that move because he's seen what happened there before. But that's just what I think. If you think Giannis has any more options, please let me know in the comments. That's going to wrap it up for today's video. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Hi guys and welcome back to the channel. Throughout NBA history, many players have been called the GOAT and a lot of people have different opinions on who the GOAT is. And the GOAT debate can often get heated and messy. Some people feel that the only way to show that their player is superior to the other person's player is to discredit them. It's also very hard to compare players who play different positions. So in today's video, I thought I'd make an even playing field and list my GOAT at every position. And before I get into it, I will just say that I will have a runner-up for every position and not discredit any players and more so lay out the facts for each player. So with that said, let's get into it. Starting with the point guard position, I have Magic Johnson with Steph Curry as the runner-up. Magic Johnson played his entire career with the Lakers from 1979 to 1996, but missing three seasons due to the HIV virus. Despite this, Magic was still able to achieve greatness and won five championships, three regular season MVPs, won three finals MVPs, and was the youngest finals MVP in NBA history, winning it in his rookie season. He stepped up from the point guard role to play center in game six, when the leader of the team, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, got injured in Game 5. He put up an incredible game, scoring 42 points, grabbing 15 rebounds and dishing out 7 assists to win the NBA Championship. Magic Johnson is widely considered the greatest passer of all time too, and to achieve this in only 13 seasons is incredible, so he is my go to point guard. Now for my shooting guard, I have Michael Jordan, with Kobe Bryant as the runner-up. Jordan, like Magic, had a fairly short career compared to the other players in NBA history, playing 13 seasons with the Chicago Bulls 
and having a short stint in Washington after he retired for the second time. In 13 seasons with the Bulls, MJ was able to win six championships and six finals MVPs. That's the most in NBA history and five regular season MVPs along with that. MJ also led the NBA in scoring for 10 seasons and won a Defensive Player of the Year award whilst leading the NBA in scoring, being the only player in NBA history to do both in the same season. MJ also holds the highest points per game for a career in NBA history at 30.1. What makes MJ particularly great is the fact that he never lost an NBA Finals. MJ also three-peated, which is an incredibly tough feat in itself, but the fact that he did this twice in only eight years is incredible. Jordan is also the only other guard in NBA history besides Magic Johnson, who I called the greatest passer of all time, to average over 10 assists per game in an NBA final series. But MJ is my goat at shooting guard. Moving on to my small forward position, I have LeBron James and my runner-up is Larry Bird. LeBron James's name has been in the GOAT debate for years and for good reason too. He's one of, if not the greatest, all-around player of all time. LeBron is a four-time champion, four-time finals MVP and four-time regular season MVP. Some of LeBron's notable achievements are his 2016 championship, where he not only ended a 52-year drought in Cleveland of not winning a title at any sport, but he also did that in one of the most dramatic ways possible, becoming the first team in NBA history to come back from a 3-1 deficit in the NBA Finals. He also did this against one of the greatest NBA teams of all time, the 73-9 Warriors. LeBron is one of the most durable athletes of all time too, and is still dominating the league in year 17 of his career. He is the third on the all-time leading scorers list and is still climbing. It's not impossible to think that he can be the all-time leading scorer, as well as being in the top 10 as well as being in the top 10 of all-time assists too. But LeBron is my go at small forward. Moving on to my power forward, I have Tim Duncan. And honestly, it's so close between Dirk Nowitzki and Kevin Garnett for my number two. But in my opinion, I would give it to Dirk because of how tough his championship was and he has also got a finals MVP. In my opinion, it's quite clear cut for most people that he is the GOAT power forward. He played his entire career with the San Antonio Spurs and won five championships, three finals MVPs and two regular season MVPs. Duncan also won his first championship in only his third season and won the Finals MVP too, which was quite a feat for such a young player, especially playing alongside a Hall of Fame centre in David Robinson. He's one of the greatest two-way players of all time, making the All-NBA defensive team 15 times and is tied with Kobe and Kareem for the second most All-NBA team selections with 15 as well. Another notable thing about Tim Duncan is the fact that if it wasn't for Ray Allen's shot in Game 6 to force a Game 7 in the 2013 NBA Finals, he would be 6-0 in the NBA Finals, like Michael Jordan. He's also a 15-time All-Star and has never missed the playoffs in his entire career. Duncan was never a flashy player, and what he did do on the court didn't really show up on the stat sheet, but he was an essential piece to winning for the Spurs. But that's it for my power forward, let's move on to the last position in today's video, and that's the centre. My GOAT centre is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and for my runner-up I have Bill Russell, even though there are many to choose from. I chose Bill Russell because of the fact that this list is about greatness, not the best. 
Bill Russell won 11 championships. That's the most in NBA history. But let's talk about Kareem. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was an immediate star when he was drafted and won an NBA championship in only his second season, simultaneously bringing Milwaukee their first ever championship. This would be only one of the six championships Kareem would win and the other five were with the Lakers and Magic Johnson. He won six regular season MVPs alongside those six championships with two finals MVPs to add to it. He is the oldest finals MVP in NBA history at 38 years old. Kareem is the all-time leading scorer in NBA history and has what is one of the most unstoppable moves in NBA history, the skyhook. He holds the record for most all-star appearances with 19 in a 20-year career and was a defensive presence as he led the league in blocks four times. But that's just my list and rankings. If you have any players you would change, please let me know in the comments below. That's going to wrap it up for today's video. I hope you have enjoyed. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Hi guys and welcome back to the channel. The last few days have been very hectic, with free agency starting on November 20th, there have been signings left, right and centre, alongside big time trades as well. Today, I want to just give a rundown on some of the big moves so far, and what I personally think of them. Without further ado, let's get into it with my first player, and that's Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard last season played for the Lakers, and in my opinion as a Lakers fan, he was a great player for us. He was very solid posting up 7 points and 7 rebounds coming off the bench. Dwight Howard signed with the Philadelphia 76ers, which I find weird for multiple reasons. Firstly, Dwight has just won a championship with the Lakers, so I'm surprised he didn't want to stay and try to go back-to-back. -back. But then again, that's not always the player's decision. The Lakers may have had another player, who I will talk about in this video, already on their target list, and so they didn't have a need for Dwight anymore. But even despite that, Dwight moved to Philly, where there is a dominant big man in Joel Embiid already there. Because of the system over in Philly, I doubt that Dwight will get many minutes, and he isn't in a good place for winning. Overall, I think it's a good signing for Philly because they get Dwight, who is a very solid player, but a bad move for Dwight. Now with Dwight gone from LA, the Lakers have some sort of hole to fill, and that's exactly what they did when they signed my next player, Montrez Harrell. This was... A This was a surprising signing as Montrez played for the Clippers for the past five seasons and for him to go to their rivals in the Lakers was very shocking, especially for people like Patrick Beverly. Despite this, I think it's a great move on both players' ends. The Lakers now get a player who can be their consistent centre, unlike last season where they would alternate between players like JaVal McGee, Dwight Howard and sometimes AD, and now they have Montrez who is coming off a great season where he won the Sixth Man of the Year award after posting 18 points and 7 rebounds in just under 30 minutes off the bench. This is a win for both people involved, firstly on Harrell's end. He has moved to the team who has just won the championship and has left a situation that was getting messy. The Lakers win because they have a solid centre like I mentioned earlier, but he's also younger and better than any other centres they had before, so it's an upgrade. But now the Clippers have lost their centre, so what will they do? The Clippers made a great signing in response to losing Harrell and decided to sign Serge Ibaka. Ibaka played with the Raptors last season and won a championship with them in 2019, so he's proven that he can compete on the highest levels. 
Ibaka is a great defensive player, so he will fit in well with the Clippers, as well as the fact that he isn't a ball-dominant big. Ibaka plays both ends and isn't a problem in the locker room. I think both sides are winning here. Personally, I think the Clippers are a better team than the Raptors, especially for the future. The Raptors were knocked out of the playoffs last season by the Celtics who are only going to get better with a developing Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. The Raptors are declining in my opinion too. Mark Gasol is 35, Kyle Lowry is 33 and Siakam was a no-show in last season's playoffs. The East is also getting a lot better. With KD coming back, it will be harder to get out of the East if they have to compete with teams like the Nets, Bucks, Heats, Celtics and even the Pacers. So for Ibaka, I think this was a great move, especially for another shot at a championship. Now that we've discussed free agents and signings, I want to talk about a few trades. Firstly, let's look at the Lakers. The Lakers recently acquired another great player in Dennis Schroeder to pair with Montrez Harrell. Schroeder, like Harrell, was a great sixth man last season and was the runner-up in the Sixth Man of the Year award. The Lakers acquiring Schroeder was a great move as Rondo unexpectedly signed with Atlanta. So now they have a point guard who personally I think is better in most aspects beside playmaking. Schroeder is also a lot younger than Rondo so that's a great piece for the future. I think Schroeder is exactly what LeBron needs in a teammate. Someone who is confident as well as competent unlike some players they had last season. Both sides win here. The Lakers upgrade their point guard and Schroeder finally gets a chance to compete for a championship. Moving on to my favourite move so far and the last move in today's video and that's the OKC trading Stephen Adams to the Pelicans. I can't express how happy I am that the Pelicans finally had a good centre. Stephen Adams is a brilliant fit for this team for many reasons. Firstly, he's a brick wall and his screens will help get players open such as Lonzo and JJ Redick as well as Brandon Ingram. But not only that, he will be great in pick and rolls with Lonzo. We saw the connection between Westbrook and Adams when they played together at OKC. So to think about Lonzo, who is a better playmaker than Westbrook with Adams, is just great. Lonzo also now has a Lonzo also now has three lob partners in Zion, Ingram and Adams. Steven Adams is also a great defensive presence in the paint and the glass cleaner on both ends, which will help massively for the Pelicans. My favourite thing about this move is that there are no weaknesses in the potential starting five for the Pelicans now. You can have a potential starting five of Lonzo at point guard, JJ Redick at shooting guard, Brandon Ingram at small forward, Zion at power forward and Steven Adams at centre. The Pelicans also got him for a steal, by giving up no players and only giving up picks. The Pelicans have upgraded their centre massively and it's such a solid team now with a few good players coming off the bench like Josh Hart and Jackson Hayes and maybe even Eric Bledsoe and George Hill if they keep them and not trade them. But that's just my thoughts on the trades and signings over the past couple of days. If you have any of the other opinions, let me know in the comments below. But that's going to wrap it up for today's video. I hope you have enjoyed, thanks so much for watching and I'll see you in the next video. Hi guys and welcome back to the channel. If you saw my last video about free agency then consider this video a follow up or a part 2. Today I'm going to look at even more signings or trades that have happened so without further ado let's get into it with my first player Gordon Hayward. 
Haywood signed a four-year, $120 million deal with the Hornets. This move is interesting because of the situation that he's going from and going to. Haywood previously played for the Celtics for the past three seasons. The situation in Boston was awkward in my opinion, as they had a very good team, but it was no clear-cut leader. Even last season with Kemba arriving, he seemed to take a back seat and let Tatum take control as a leader. I personally think that it was hard for Hayward to find his place and fit into the system for two reasons. Firstly, he was injured in the first season with Boston, with a broken leg. And during the time that he was out, players like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown were developing into stars. So when Hayward came back from injury, the situation he expected when he signed was completely different to when he came back and played. Hayward is still decent in my opinion, being somewhat young at 29, he averaged last season a solid 17 points, 6 rebounds and 4 assists. I think most people are benefiting from this move. The Celtics lose a big contract player, who they can replace with a few solid players, but even then, they don't need to because if you look at their team success they had recently, it's mainly been because of Tatum and Brown and Kemba. But they have a lot of solid role players who step up, such as Smart and Tice. Hayward benefits because he ha- Hayward benefits because he gets to play a bigger role in a team now with the Hornets as they didn't have an established best player until recently when they drafted LaMelo Ball. LaMelo will not hurt Hayward's game unlike Tatum and that's no discredit or shade thrown at Tatum but more to do with their playstyle. Tatum is a scorer and quite ball dominant. Lamelo, on the other hand, is a playmaker, and I acknowledge that he is quite ball dominant too, but he's a point guard, so it's normal. But despite this, he will help elevate Gordon Hayward's game, but also everyone else's on the team as well. So overall, it's a good move for Hayward, as he gets a bigger role in the team, and it's good for the Hornets because they get somebody who is very solid that they can pair with their new star point guard in Lamelo Ball. Now on to my next players, and that's Martin Gasol and JaVal McGee. I talked about Gasol in my last video, and since then he has signed a two-year deal with the Lakers. I mentioned JaVale in this because JaVale has made the move from the Lakers to the Cavs, so the Lakers have basically replaced JaVale with Gasol. I think this is a bit weird for the Lakers, because if you compare both players' numbers, they're quite similar. The only big difference in my opinion is assists, where Mark Gasol is better, but besides that, there's not much difference, and this is why I find it weird. The Lakers aren't upgrading their centre in terms of numbers, but they've taken a player who's older. JaVale is 32 and Gasol is 35, so I don't know why they would risk taking a centre who could possibly decline due to age compared to JaVale, who can still be productive for another year or two. There are probably more factors other than numbers that come into this, but it's really all I see right now. So on the surface level, I think that it's a bad move for the Lakers, but good for other people involved. The Lakers lose by taking an older centre by Gasol, but he wins because he gets another shot at a championship. The Raptors are now in an odd situation. With both their centres gone, they need to find replacements, but this is probably but this is probably the start of their rebuild. Keeping the theme of centres, my next player is Tristan Thompson. Thompson moved from Cleveland and signed with the Celtics, which is a good move for him. He averaged 12 points and 10 rebounds with the Cavs last season and I think he will fit in well with the Celtics as a solid big man who can just get rebounds. He is still young at 28 and can have a shot at a championship with the Celtics now and he left a bad situation at Cleveland. Overall this is a good move for the Celtics and Thompson. 
Now my final player for this video is Avery Bradley. Bradley finished the last season with Bradley finished last season with the Championship Lakers and has moved to another contender in the Miami Heat. I think this is a good move. He can be another great impact player off the bench, but he's also good enough to start. He will fit well with the Heat as he's a great defensive player, so pairing him with other great defensive and hustle players in Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo will be great. The Heat now have one of the deepest teams in the league and I can see them making the finals again just because of their depth. It'll be tough to beat KD next season in my eyes, but if any team can do it, it'll be the Heat. Overall, this is a great move for Avery Bradley for two reasons. Firstly, he leaves LA where they already have two or three point guards and now joins another situation where he can win a championship, but he may have a bigger role as a point guard. But that's going to wrap it up for today's video. I hope you have enjoyed. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Hi guys and welcome back to the channel. The past few days have seen many teams make big signings during free agency. And one team in particular that has really grabbed my attention is the Lakers. As a Lakers fan myself and coming off of a championship, I'd really like to see us go back to back. And that's what I'm going to explore in today's video with why the Lakers will repeat next season. So let's get into it. Firstly, let's look at the pieces we have. Our two main pieces are Anthony Davis and LeBron James. AD and LeBron obviously can play well together, as we saw last season. But what is really good to see is the fact that AD played exceptionally well in the playoffs and the finals. If AD is able to do this again next season, then we already have a great shot at the title, just because we have two MVP calibre players who can win games for us. Now let's look at the other pieces that Now let's look at the other pieces they have acquired during free agency. These are probably the biggest factor into why the Lakers can repeat next season. The Lakers have acquired two great players in Montrez Harrell and Dennis Schroeder. Both players were in the race for the Sixth Man of the Year award and Montrez Harrell actually won it. Last season both players put up great numbers. Schroeder averaged 18 points, 4 assists and 3 rebounds with some notable stats to go alongside it, such as his three-point percentage, where he shot nearly 40% from three last season and shot nearly 50% from the field too. And Montrez Harrell averaged 18 points, one assist and seven rebounds per game, with one block and shooting 58% from the field. I mentioned in my previous videos that Harrell will be the Lakers' consistent centre, which is true, but now he has a new teammate in Mark Gasol to help him. I recently said that Marc Gasol isn't really an upgrade from the Lakers' previous centres as JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard. And I still believe that. But one thing I didn't mention was the fact that Gasol can shoot. Gasol shot 38.5% from three last season and 44.2% the season before that. So this will be better for spacing compared to any centre in the... So this will be better for spacing compared to any centre the Lakers had before. Now let's look at what these players bring. While Schroeder can handle the ball extremely well and is a great scorer and can get you a bucket whenever you need, he will most likely be the starting point guard for the Lakers next season. Harrell, on the other hand, is a great hustle player and defender. He reminds me a lot of Draymond Green as a player who's smaller in size but plays up for his position. I can really see these two immediately filling their roles and being solid players for the Lakers now and into the future. 
Another notable thing is that we re-signed KCP and got rid of Danny Green. Danny Green didn't shoot well at all during the playoffs last season, but KCP was quite solid. And for the entire season, he shot 38.5% from three, which is pretty good. Our potential starting five for next season could consist of Dennis Schroeder at point guard, KCP at shooting guard, LeBron small forward, AD power forward and Montrezl Harrell at centre, with a good bench of Alex Caruso, Mark Gasol and Wesley Matthews, another signing. One big takeaway from signing Montrezl Harrell is that we have taken him away from the Clippers, who are probably the next biggest threat to the Lakers in the West. Although they did sign Sergi Ibaka, I still think that we won here. The next factor I want to talk about is competition. The West is a great conference, but some teams are being set back, such as the Warriors with Clay Thompson's injury, and the Rockets with both stars in Russell Westbrook and James Harden requesting trades. With that said, I think the next biggest threats in the West are the Nuggets and the Clippers. The Nuggets made it to the Western Conference Finals last year, and I think they could again this year too. But besides these two teams, I don't think any team is going to be neck and neck with the Lakers, even though there are good teams like the Suns, Pelicans, Mavericks, Jazz, Blazers, and maybe even the Grizzlies. But it's nothing against them, it's just because we have LeBron. I say this because we saw how easy it was for him to run through the teams in the East, like the Raptors and Celtics, who were really put, well put together teams. So without the Warriors dynasty making a return and the Rockets being disassembled, I don't think any team poses a massive threat to the Lakers as of right now. But that's just my thoughts right now, and I have no doubt in my mind that things will be different by even tomorrow with free agency and teams trading. But the Lakers squad is looking very solid as of right now. But that's going to wrap it up for today's video. I hope you have enjoyed. Thanks so much for watching, and I'll see you in the next one. Hi guys, welcome back to the channel. Since the off-season began, many teams have been making moves, but a big thing that I've noticed is quite a few title contenders are making moves to strengthen their roster and really increase their shot at winning the title. So that's what I'm going to look at in today's video, with the top five teams most likely to win the championship next season. So without further ado, let's get into it with my number five spot, and that's the Clippers. The Clippers are my number five spot for a few reasons. Firstly, they were the title favourites last season, and that was for good reason too. They had a very good and deep squad. They also had the reigning finals MVP in Kawhi Leonard, and so it shocked people when they blew a 3-1 lead in the Western Conference semi-finals to the Denver Nuggets. Now if they lost to the Nuggets, doesn't that make the Nuggets better? Well yes and no. I personally don't think that the Clippers team was playing as well as they could have, and that's for one reason. Paul George. Paul George, to put it bluntly, was flat out awful last playoffs. Earning the nickname Pandemic P. But when PG later came out and said that he was struggling mentally being in the bubble, that's what made me realise that he isn't going to be himself, especially in an environment like the bubble, with no family members there for support. So next season, when things hopefully return to normal, then I think we will see the Paul George that we're used to seeing. But even if there is another bubble type situation, I think that PG will cope better this time. And the NBA may allow family members to visit sooner, due to how well they did it this year. So that's why I think the Clippers will be better than last season, as they will hopefully get Paul George back to his normal self. The Clippers have lost a good piece of Montrezl Harrell, but they did sign Serge Ibaka in response, 
so I don't think they will feel much of an effect. But moving on from my number five spot, and now onto my number four, I have the books. The books, like the Clippers, only made the conference semi-finals last year, and that was largely to do with there not being good enough players around Giannis. Giannis had a great playoffs numbers-wise last season, but his teammates underperformed and weren't able to help him out as much in the playoffs as they did during the regular season. However, the Bucks head office have made some big trades and signings, so now they have acquired Drew Holiday, who will help that Bucks team out a lot in my opinion. He's a very solid player who Giannis can fall back and rely on for both a bucket and a defensive stop. They have a solid lineup now with Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, Giannis and Brooke Lopez, with someone like a Kyle Korver as their fifth player. We also have to consider Giannis and his Supermax contract. If Giannis declines it, he still has one more year left with the books, so that could be the biggest push he will make towards the championship because he'll give it his all for his last year with the books. I have no doubt in my mind that the books will make one more big signing before free agency ends, just to give them the best shot at a championship. The books, like the Clippers, only made the conference semi-finals last year, and that was largely to do with their not being good enough players around Giannis. Giannis had a great playoffs numbers-wise last season, but his teammates underperformed and weren't able to help him out as much as they did during the regular season. However, the Bucks head office have made some big trades and signings, so now they have acquired Drew Holiday, who will help that Bucks team out a lot in my opinion. He's a very solid player, who Giannis can fall back and rely on for both a bucket and a defensive stop. They have a solid lineup with Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, Giannis and Brook Lopez, with someone like a Kyle Korver as a solid shooter for the fifth player. We also have to consider Giannis and his Supermax contract. If Giannis declines it, he still has one year left on his contract, and that could be the biggest push for a championship, because he'll give it all for his last year with the Bucks. I have no doubt in my mind that the Bucks will make one more big signing before free agency ends, just to give them the best shot at a championship. With that said, let's move on to the number three spot, and that's the Nets. The Nets are my number three spot because of a few things. Firstly, they made the playoffs last season without having KD, and Kyrie was also out for most of the season too. Now they have KD back, who in my opinion is the second best player in the league when healthy, and even if he's not 100% himself, I think he's still top 5. And so with KD, that team is dangerous, but when you want to add Kyrie to that, and it's just an immediate favourite without playing a single game. I personally think that the Nets have the two most skilled players in the league right now with KD and Kyrie, and to think they are surrounded by good players in Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert and Jarrett Allen, then this team is built for a championship. Another interesting thing is the rumours around James Harden. If the Nets get Harden, then the whole team makeup will be completely different. If they trade for him, they will lose most of their solid players, and possibly even a star like Kyrie. But if Houston ask for Kyrie, then I think the trade is completely out of the window. I think the Nets are set on keeping Kyrie, and they probably think, we don't need Harden because we're content with how our team is now, and it's probably better to keep a solid all-around team together than to break it up for an extremely top-heavy team surrounded by nobodies. And with that said, let's move on to my number two spot, and that's the Miami Heat. Miami made the finals last year, and that's a big reason to why I have them here. 
They have shown they can beat the teams in the East besides the Nets, but even still, the Heat are the team to beat in the East. They have made a signing in Avery Bradley, which is a great move, but they did let a very good player go in Jay Crowder, so I'm worried about the impact. Even despite this though, the Heat are so deep that they can probably replace him easily. Something scary to think about is experience. The young players in Bam Adebayo, Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson now all have playoff experience and what better experience is there to have than the finals and playing against superstars like Giannis, LeBron and AD all in one playoff run. Also, the Heat's young players, like the players I just mentioned, are only going to get better. So the Heat are nothing to be overlooked. They are a well-coached team and probably the best two-way team in the NBA. And that's why they were able to beat the Bucks last year. They formed a great defence to stop Giannis and their offence just flowed. And with that said, let's move on to the final team in today's video. My number one spot, and that's the Lakers. The Lakers are the champions, so they are technically the best team in the league right now. And since then, the roster has changed. And it's changed for the better, with key signings in Montrezl Harrell and Dennis Schroeder through trade. The upgrades at these positions will benefit the Lakers massively as it takes more load off of LeBron and AD. I think it will be better for LeBron mostly because he can look around and actually feel confident when he passes the ball to a teammate if he sees a Dennis Schroeder or a Montrezl Harrell. I said last year that it felt like the Lakers threw together a rushed version of a championship roster and that was completely on them because they were trying to get Kawhi to sign but Kawhi held out signing with anybody for so long that any good free agents were being signed in the time that the Lakers were waiting. But now this Lakers roster actually looks like a good team and it's scary to think that LeBron and AD carried a rushed roster to the title. Now they have an actual team, I think they will run through the West. But that's all for today's video. If you would change anything, let me know in the comments below. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you in the next one. Hi guys and welcome back to the channel. With the NBA draft finished and players settled down in their new cities, it's got me thinking about the future of these players. And one player in particular is Lamelo Ball. Lamelo has been box office since he was 15 and it's followed him throughout his entire career and now into the NBA. As we see, the Hornets had the largest increase in ticket interest post-draft. Today, I want to look at the direction the Hornets are heading in and explore other possible scenarios that could happen in the very near future. So without further ado, let's get into it. Firstly, let's look at the roster the Hornets currently have. They can have two possible starting fives, in my opinion. The first is Lamelo at point guard, Terry Rozier at shooting guard, Miles Bridges at small forward, Gordon Hayward at power forward and Cody Zeller at centre. However, the second lineup is different due to what the general manager of the Hornets said. Mitch Kupchak said, You shouldn't just think of Lamelo as a point guard. In the way that positionless basketball is, considering his height, considering everything else, we're going to find ways to blend him. Maybe play some point forward. This is interesting because now the lineup can change. If Lamelo is at point forward, this lineup would be Devontae Graham at point guard, Terry Rozier at shooting guard, probably Gordon Hayward at small forward, Lamelo at power forward, and Cody Zeller at centre. Personally, I like the idea of Lamelo at point forward for a few reasons. Firstly, it allows Devontae Graham to play alongside him, which Lamelo could use as Devontae is a good shooter, shooting 37% from three last season. 
However, this could be somewhat detrimental to Lamelo's game for two reasons. If he shares the point guard role with Devontae Graham, it's inhibiting Lamelo's ability to be a playmaker as he has the ball less. And the second reason is that Lamelo would push a player like Miles Bridges out of the starting lineup, which is bad because of how well Lamelo's game complements Bridges. As Miles Bridges is athletic and can play above the rim, catching lob from Lamelo. And so this brings me on to my next point. Maybe the Hornets need to chop and change some players. Now is the perfect time to do this as it's free agency. Since Melo's arrival to Charlotte, there have been rumours circulating around Terry Rozier and him wanting out. Rozier was the biggest name on the team last season since Kemba's departure, and he was a good player. But now with Lamelo joining, who is a much bigger name, and three guards on the team, it might not work, especially with Rozier's playstyle. Rozier liked to run the clock down and dribble, which is the complete opposite of Lamelo's game. Lamelo will want to push the pace and get that ball up the court as soon as he gets it. Lamelo likes to throw passes like an NFL player, similar to his brother Lonzo, and so these games may not mesh well. With that said, let's look at what could happen in free agency because of this. The Hornets could trade Rozier, and there are two destinations that seem like good spots. First is the Clippers. The Clippers need a point guard, and although he played shooting guard last season, Rozier is actually a point guard. The only issue is, what are the Clippers willing to give up? They have a lot of players who are almost essential parts of the group, for example a Lou Williams or a Patrick Beverly, and so forth. So a trade with the Clippers will most likely be for a bad player and a few picks. But now for a very interesting trade. The Hornets could possibly trade Rozier to the Pelicans, and receive back Lonzo Ball and JJ Redick. This would be a huge trade for the Hornets in my mind. They would win this trade by a landslide. Even if they have to throw in another player like Devontae Graham, I personally think this trade would be phenomenal. With Lonzo at point guard, Redick at shooting guard, Hayward at small forward, Lamelo at power forward and Cody Zeller at centre, this team could work extremely well. Three players who can play fast paced in Lamelo, Lonzo and JJ would work perfectly and could even substitute Hayward for Miles Bridges, who would complete that lineup perfectly. The only issue here is if the Pelicans are set on keeping Lonzo. I have already said that the Pelicans team is perfect for the future, but will Lonzo prefer to stay on a great team for the future, or would he want to play with his brother? Either way, we will find out by next summer, as it brings me on to my last point for today's video. The three Ball Brothers in Charlotte. Lonzo, like I mentioned, could be traded, but even if he isn't, Lonzo is a free agent next season, so he can choose to go to Charlotte if he wants to. Leangelo isn't signed anywhere, so the Hornets could even pick him up this season and play him alongside Melo for bench depth as well. Lavar's dream of all three boys on the same team is very close to coming true. It can possibly happen this season if the trade goes through, but I doubt it will. And it can definitely happen next season if the Hornets make the right moves. But that's just my thoughts on Lamelo's near future in Charlotte. If you have any thoughts, please leave them in the comments below. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you in the next one.